This is the SFF Audio Podcast. Today's podcast is a reading of Beyond the Black River by Robert E. Howard. This comes to us courtesy of Tantor Media and their collection of Robert E. Howard short stories called The Conquering Sword of Conan. You can find that at tantor.com. The narrator is Todd McLaren. You might know him from Richard K. Morgan's Altered Carbon. He's a terrific narrator, and I think you'll really dig the story. We'll have a discussion at the end of the podcast. Beyond the Black River 1. Conan Loses His Axe The stillness of the forest trail was so primeval that the tread of a soft-booted foot was a startling disturbance. At least it seemed so to the ears of the wayfarer, though he was moving along the path with a caution that must be practiced by any man who ventured beyond Thunder River. He was a young man of medium height, with an open countenance and a mop of tussled, tawny hair, unconfined by cap or helmet. His garb was common enough for that country. A coarse tunic, belted at the waist, short leather breeches beneath, and soft buckskin boots that came short of the knee. A knife-hilt jutted from one boot-top. The broad leather belt supported a short, heavy sword and a buckskin pouch. There was no perturbation in the wide eyes that scanned the green walls which fringed the trail. Though not tall, he was well-built, and the arms that the short, wide sleeves of the tunic left bare were thick with corded muscle. He tramped imperturbably along, although the last settler's cabin lay miles behind him, and each step was carrying him nearer the grim peril that hung like a brooding shadow over the ancient forest. He was not making as much noise as it seemed to him, though he well knew that the faint tread of his booted feet would be like a toxin of alarm to the fierce ears that might be lurking in the treacherous green fastness. His careless attitude was not genuine. His eyes and ears were keenly alert, especially his ears, for no gaze could penetrate the leafy tangle for more than a few feet in either direction. But it was instinct, more than any warning by the external senses, which brought him up suddenly, his hand on his hilt. He stood stock still in the middle of the trail, unconsciously holding his breath, wondering what he had heard, and wondering if he had heard anything. The silence seemed absolute. Not a squirrel chittered or bird chirped. Then his gaze fixed itself on a mass of bushes beside the trail a few yards ahead of him. There was no breeze, yet he had seen a branch quiver. The short hairs on his scalp prickled, and he stood for an instant undecided, certain that a move in either direction would bring death streaking at him from the bushes. A heavy chopping crunch sounded behind the leaves. The bushes were shaken violently, and simultaneously with the sound, an arrow arched erratically from among them and vanished among the trees along the trail. The wayfarer glimpsed its flight as he sprang frantically to cover. Crouching behind a thick stem, his sword quivering in his fingers, he saw the bushes part, and a tall figure stepped leisurely into the trail. The traveler stared in surprise. The stranger was clad like himself in regard to boots and breeks, though the latter were of silk instead of leather. 
but he wore a sleeveless hauberk of dark meshmail in place of a tunic and a helmet perched on his black mane. That helmet held the other's gaze. It was without a crest, but adorned by short bull's horns. No civilized hand ever forged that headpiece, nor was the face below it that of a civilized man. Dark, scarred, with smoldering blue eyes, it was a face as untamed as the primordial forest which formed its background. The man held a broadsword in his right hand, and the edge was smeared with crimson. "'Come on out!' he called, in an accent unfamiliar to the wayfarer. "'All's safe now. There was only one of the dogs. Come on out!' The other emerged dubiously and stared at the stranger. He felt curiously helpless and futile as he gazed on the proportions of the forest man, the massive iron-clad breast, and the arm that bore the reddened sword, burned dark by the sun and ridged and corded with muscles. He moved with the dangerous ease of a panther. He was too fiercely supple to be a product of civilization, even of that fringe of civilization which composed the outer frontiers. Turning, he stepped back to the bushes and pulled them apart. Still not certain just what had happened, the wayfarer from the east advanced and stared down into the bushes. A man lay there, a short, dark, thickly muscled man, naked except for a loincloth, a necklace of human teeth, and a brass armlet. A short sword was thrust into the girdle of the loincloth, and one hand still gripped a heavy black bow. The man had long black hair. That was about all the wayfarer could tell about his head, for his features were a mask of blood and brains. His skull had been split to the teeth. "'A Picked by the gods!' exclaimed the wayfarer. The burning blue eyes turned upon him. "'Are you surprised?' "'Why, they told me at Velletrium, and again at the settlers' cabins along the road, that these devils sometimes sneaked across the border.' but I didn't expect to meet one this far in the interior. "'You're only four miles east of Black River,' the stranger informed him. "'They've been shot within a mile of Velitrium. No settler between Thunder River and Fort Tesculin is really safe. I picked up this dog's trail three miles south of the fort this morning, and I've been following him ever since. I came up behind him just as he was drawing an arrow on you.' Another instant, and there'd have been a stranger in hell. But I spoiled his aim for him. The wayfarer was staring wide-eyed at the larger man, dumbfounded by the realization that the man had actually tracked down one of the forest devils and slain him unsuspected. That implied woodsmanship of a quality undreamed, even for Konojahara. You are one of the fort's garrison? he asked. I'm no soldier. I draw pay and rations of an officer of the line, but I do my work in the woods. Valanus knows I'm of more use ranging along the river than cooped up in the fort. Casually, the slayer shoved the body deeper into the thickets with his foot, pulled the bushes together, and turned away down the trail. The other followed him. My name is Balthus, he offered. I was at Velitrium last night. I haven't decided whether I'll take up a hide of land or enter fort service. The best land near Thunder River is already taken, grunted the slayer. 
Plenty of good land between Scalp Creek. You crossed it a few miles back, and the fort. But that's getting too devilish close to the river. The Picts steal over to burn and murder, like that one did. They don't always come singly. Some day they'll try to sweep the settlers out of Konajahara, and they may succeed. Probably will succeed. This colonization business is mad anyway. There's plenty of good land east of the Bassonian marshes. If the Aquilonians would cut up some of the big estates of their barons and plant wheat where now only deer are hunted, they wouldn't have to cross the border and take the land of the Picts away from them. That's queer talk from a man in the service of the governor of Konajahara, objected Balthus. It's nothing to me, the other retorted. I'm a mercenary. I sell my sword to the highest bidder. I never planted wheat, and never will, so long as there are other harvests to be reaped with the sword. But you Hyborians have expanded as far as you'll be allowed to expand. You've crossed the marches, burned a few villages, exterminated a few clans, and pushed back the frontier to Black River. But I doubt if you'll even be able to hold what you've conquered, and you'll never push the frontier any further westward. Your idiotic king doesn't understand conditions here. He won't send you enough reinforcements, and there are not enough settlers to withstand the shock of a concerted attack from across the river. But the Picts are divided into small clans, persisted Balthus. They'll never unite. We can whip any single clan. Or any three or four clans, admitted the Slayer. But some day a man will rise and unite thirty or forty clans, just as was done among the Cimmerians when the Gundermen tried to push the border northward years ago. They tried to colonize the southern marches of Cimmeria, destroyed a few small clans, built a fort town, Venarium. You've heard the tale. So I have indeed, replied Balthus, wincing. The memory of that red disaster was a black blot in the chronicles of a proud and warlike people. My uncle was at Venarium when the Cimmerians swarmed over the walls. He was one of the few who escaped that slaughter. I've heard him tell the tale many a time. The barbarians swept out of the hills in a ravening horde without warning and stormed Venarium with such fury none could stand before them. Men, women, and children were butchered. Venarium was reduced to a mass of charred ruins, as it is to this day. The Aquilonians were driven back across the marches and have never since tried to colonize the Cimmerian country. But you speak of Venarium familiarly. Perhaps you were there? I was, grunted the other. I was one of the horde that swarmed over the walls. I hadn't yet seen fifteen snows, but already my name was repeated about the council fires. Balthus involuntarily recoiled, staring. It seemed incredible that the man walking tranquilly at his side should have been one of those screeching, blood-mad devils that had poured over the walls of Anarium on that long-gone day to make her streets run crimson. "'Then you too are a barbarian!' he exclaimed involuntarily. The other nodded, without taking offense. "'I am Conan, a Cimmerian.' I've heard of you. Fresh interest quickened Balthus's gaze. 
no wonder the Pict had fallen victim to his own sort of subtlety. The Cimmerians were barbarians as ferocious as the Picts, and much more intelligent. Evidently, Conan had spent much time among civilized men, though that contact had obviously not softened him, nor weakened any of his primitive instincts. Balthus's apprehension turned to admiration as he marked the easy, cat-like stride, the effortless silence with which the Cimmerian moved along the trail. The oiled links of his armor did not clink, and Balthus knew Conan could glide through the deepest thicket or most tangled copse as noiselessly as any naked Pict that ever lived. You're not a Gunderman. It was more assertion than question. Balthus shook his head. I'm from the Tauran. I've seen good woodsmen from the Tauran. But the Bassonians have sheltered you Aquilonians from the outer wilderness for too many centuries. You need heartening. That was true. The Bassonian marches, with their fortified villages filled with determined bowmen, had long served Aquilonia as a buffer against the outlying barbarians. Now among the settlers beyond Thunder River, there was growing up a breed of forest men capable of meeting the barbarians at their own game, but their numbers were still scanty. Most of the frontiersmen were like Balthus, more of the settler than the woodsman type. The sun had not set, but it was no longer in sight, hidden as it was behind the dense forest wall. The shadows were lengthening, deepening back in the woods as the companions strode on down the trail. It'll be dark before we reach the fort, commented Conan casually. Then, listen! He stopped short, half-crouching, sword ready, transformed into a savage figure of suspicion and menace, poised to spring and rend. Balthus had heard it too, a wild scream that broke at its highest note. It was the cry of a man in dire fear or agony. Conan was off in an instant, racing down the trail, each stride widening the distance between him and his straining companion. Balthus puffed a curse. Among the settlements of the Tauran he was accounted a good runner, but Conan was leaving him behind with an ease which was maddening. Then Balthus forgot his exasperation as his ears were outraged by the most frightful cry he had ever heard. It was not human, this one. It was a demoniacal caterwauling of hideous triumph that seemed to exult over fallen humanity and find echo in black gulfs beyond human ken. Balthus faltered in his stride and clammy sweat beaded his flesh. But Conan did not hesitate. He darted around a bend in the trail and disappeared, and Balthus, panicky at finding himself alone with that awful scream still shuddering through the forest in grisly echoes, put on an extra burst of speed and plunged after him. The Aquilonian slid to a stumbling halt, almost colliding with the Cimmerian who stood in the trail over a crumpled body. But Conan was not looking at the corpse which lay there in the crimson-soaked dust. He was glaring into the deep woods on each side of the trail. Balthus muttered a horrified oath. It was the body of a man which lay there on the trail, a short, fat man, clad in the gilt-worked boots and, despite the heat, the ermine-trimmed tunic of a wealthy merchant. His fat, pale face was set in a stare of frozen horror. 
His thick throat had been slashed from ear to ear as if by a razor-sharp blade. The short sword still in its scabbard seemed to indicate that he had been struck down without a chance to fight for his life. A Picked, Balthus whispered, as he turned to peer into the deepening shadows of the forest. Conan shook his head and straightened to scowl down at the dead man. A forest devil. This is the fourth by Crom. What do you mean? Did you ever hear of a Pictish wizard called Zogar Sag? Balthus shook his head uneasily. He dwells in Guawela, the nearest village across the river. Three months ago he hid beside this road and stole a string of pack mules from a pack train bound for the fort, drugged their driver somehow. The mules belonged to this man. Conan casually indicated the corpse with his foot. Tiberius, a merchant of Veletrium. They were loaded with ale kegs, and old Zogar stopped to guzzle before he got across the river. A woodsman named Soractus trailed him, and led Valanus and a couple of soldiers to where he lay dead drunk in a thicket. At the importunities of Tiberius, Valanus threw Zogar Sag into a cell, which is the worst insult you can give a Pict. He managed to kill his guard and escape, and sent back word that he meant to kill Tiberius and the four men who captured him, in a way that would make Aquilonians shudder for centuries to come. Well, Soractus and the soldiers are dead. Soractus was killed on the river, the soldiers in the very shadow of the fort. And now Tiberius is dead. No Pict killed any of them. Each victim, except Tiberius, as you see, lacked his head, which no doubt is now ornamenting the altar of Zogar Sag's particular god. How do you know they weren't killed by the Picts? demanded Balthus. Conan pointed to the corpse of the merchant. You think that was done with a knife or a sword? Look closer and you'll see that only a talon could have made a gash like that. The flesh is ripped, not cut. Perhaps a panther, began Balthus, without conviction. Conan shook his head impatiently. A man from the Tauran wouldn't mistake the mark of a panther's claws. No, it's a forest devil summoned by Zogar Sag to carry out his revenge. Tiberius was a fool to start for Velitrium alone, and this close to dusk. But each one of the victims seemed to be smitten with madness just before doom overtook him. Look here, the signs are plain enough. Tiberius came riding along the trail on his mule, maybe with a bundle of choice otter pelts behind his saddle to sell in Velitrium, and the thing sprang on him from behind that bush. See where the branches are crushed down? Tiberius gave one scream, and then his throat was torn open and he was selling his otter skins in hell. The mule ran away into the woods. Listen, even now you can hear him thrashing about under the trees. The demon didn't have time to take Tiberius's head. It took fright as we came up. As you came up, amended Balthus, it must not be a very terrible creature if it flees from one-armed man. But how do you know it was not a Pict with some kind of a hook that rips instead of slicing? Did you see it? Tiberius was an armed man, grunted Conan. 
If Zogar Sag can bring demons to aid him, he can tell them which men to kill and which to let alone. No, I didn't see it. I only saw the bushes shake as it left the trail. But if you want further proof, look here. The slayer had stepped into the pool of blood in which the dead man sprawled. Under the bushes at the edge of the path there was a footprint, made in blood on the hard loam. Did a man make that? demanded Conan. Balthus felt his scalp prickle. Neither man nor any beast that he had ever seen could have left that strange, monstrous, three-toed print that was curiously combined of the bird and the reptile, yet a true type of neither. He spread his fingers above the print, careful not to touch it, and grunted explosively. He could not span the mark. What is it? he whispered. I never saw a beast that left a spore like that. Nor any other sane man, answered Conan grimly. It's a swamp demon. Hell, they're thick as bats in the swamps beyond Black River. You can hear them howling like damned souls when the wind blows strong from the south on hot nights. What shall we do? asked the Aquilonian, peering uneasily into the deep blue shadows. The frozen fear on the dead countenance haunted him. He wondered what hideous head the wretch had seen thrust grinning from among the leaves to chill his blood with terror. No use to try to follow a demon, grunted Conan, drawing a short woodsman's axe from his girdle. I tried tracking him after he killed Soractus. I lost his trail within a dozen steps. He might have grown himself wings and flown away, or sunk down through the earth to hell. I don't know. I'm not going after the mule, either. It'll either wander back to the fort or to some settler's cabin. As he spoke, Conan was busy at the edge of the trail with his axe. With a few strokes he cut a pair of saplings nine or ten feet long and denuded them of their branches. Then he cut a length from a serpent-like vine that crawled among the bushes nearby, and making one end fast to one of the poles, a couple of feet from the end, whipped the vine over the other sapling and interlaced it back and forth. In a few moments he had a crude but strong litter. "'The demon isn't going to get Tiberius's head if I can help it,' he growled. "'We'll carry the body into the fort. It isn't more than three miles.' I never liked the fat bastard, but we can't have Pictish devils making so cursed free with white men's heads. The Picts were a white race, though swarthy, but the border men never spoke of them as such. Balthus took the rear end of the litter, onto which Conan unceremoniously dumped the unfortunate merchant, and they moved on down the trail as swiftly as possible. Conan made no more noise laden with their grim burden than he had made when unencumbered. He had made a loop with the merchant's belt at the end of the poles and was carrying his share of the load with one hand while the other gripped his naked broadsword and his restless gaze roved the sinister walls about them. The shadows were thickening. A darkening blue mist seemed to blur the outlines of the foliage, the forest deepened in the twilight, became a blue haunt of mystery, sheltering unguessed things. 
They had covered more than a mile, and the muscles in Balthus's sturdy arms were beginning to ache a little, when a cry rang shudderingly from the woods, whose blue shadows were deepening into purple. Conan started convulsively, and Balthus almost let go of the poles. "'A woman!' cried the younger man. "'Great Mitra! A woman cried out then!' "'A settler's wife straying in the woods,' snarled Conan, setting down his end of the litter. "'Looking for a cow, probably, and—stay here!' He dived like a hunting wolf into the leafy wall. Balthus's hair bristled. "'Stay here alone with this corpse and a devil hiding in the woods?' he yelped. "'I'm coming with you!' And suiting action to words, he plunged after the Cimmerian. Conan glanced back at him but made no objection, though he did not moderate his pace to accommodate the shorter legs of his companion. Balthus wasted his wind and swearing as the Cimmerian drew away from him again, flitting like a phantom between the trees, and then Conan burst into a dim glade and halted crouching, lips snarling, sword lifted. "'What are we stopping for?' panted Balthus, dashing the sweat out of his eyes and gripping his short sword. "'That scream came from this glade, or nearby,' answered Conan. "'I don't mistake the location of sounds, even in the woods. "'But where—' "'Abruptly the sound rang out again, behind them, "'in the direction of the trail they had just quitted. "'It rose piercingly and pitifully, "'the cry of a woman in frantic terror. "'And then, shockingly, it changed to a yell of mocking laughter "'that might have burst from the lips of a fiend of lower hell. "'What in Mitra's name?' Balthus's face was a pale blur in the gloom. With a scorching oath, Conan wheeled and dashed back the way he had come, and the Aquilonian stumbled bewilderedly after him. He blundered into the Cimmerian as the latter stopped dead and rebounded from his brawny shoulders as though from an iron statue. Gasping from the impact, he heard Conan's breath hiss through his teeth. The Cimmerian seemed frozen in his tracks. Looking over his shoulder, Balthus felt his hair stand up stiffly. Something was moving through the deep bushes that fringed the trail, something that neither walked nor flew, but seemed to glide like a serpent. But it was not a serpent. Its outlines were indistinct, but it was taller than a man and not very bulky. It gave off a glimmer of weird light, like a faint blue flame. Indeed, the eerie fire was the only tangible thing about it. It might have been an embodied flame moving with reason and purpose through the blackening woods. Conan snarled a savage curse and hurled his axe with ferocious will. But the thing glided on without altering its course. Indeed, it was only a few instants fleeting glimpse that they had of it. A tall, shadowy thing of misty flame floating through the thickets. Then it was gone, and the forest crouched in breathless stillness. With a snarl, Conan plunged through the intervening foliage and into the trail. His profanity, as Balthus floundered after him, was lurid and impassioned. The Cimmerian was standing over the litter on which lay the body of Tiberius. And that body no longer possessed a head. "'Tricked us with its damnable caterwauling!' raved Conan, swinging his great sword about his head in his wrath. "'I might have known! 
I might have guessed a trick. Now there'll be five heads to decorate Zogar's altar. But what thing is it that can cry like a woman and laugh like a devil, and shines like witch-fire as it glides through the trees? gasped Balthus, mopping the sweat from his pale face. A swamp devil, responded Conan morosely. Grab those poles. We'll take in the body anyway. At least our load's a bit lighter. With which grim philosophy he gripped the leather loop and stalked down the trail. 2. The Wizard of Guawela Fort Tusculan stood on the eastern bank of Black River, the tides of which washed the foot of the stockade. The latter was of logs, as were all the buildings within, including the donjon, to dignify it by that appellation, in which were the governor's quarters, overlooking the stockade and the sullen river. Beyond that river lay a huge forest, which approached jungle-like density along the spongy shores. Men paced the runways along the log parapet day and night, watching that dense green wall. Seldom a menacing figure appeared, but the sentries knew that they too were watched, fiercely, hungrily, with a mercilessness of ancient hate. The forest beyond the river might seem desolate and vacant of life to the ignorant eye, but life teemed there, not alone of bird and beast and reptile, but also of men, the fiercest of all the hunting beasts. There at the fort, civilization ended. This was no empty phrase. Fort Tusculan was indeed the last outpost of a civilized world. It represented the westernmost thrust of the dominant Hyborian races. Beyond the river, the primitive still reigned in shadowy forests, brush-thatched huts where hung the grinning skulls of men, and mud-walled enclosures where fires flickered and drums rumbled, and spears were wetted in the hands of dark, silent men with tangled black hair and the eyes of serpents. Those eyes often glared through the bushes at the fort across the river. Once, dark-skinned men had built their huts where that fort stood. Yes, and their huts had risen where now stood the fields and log cabins of fair-haired settlers back beyond Volitrium, that raw, turbulent frontier town on the banks of Thunder River, to the shores of that other river that bounds the Bassonian marches. Traders had come, and priests of Mitra who walked with bare feet and empty hands, and died horribly, most of them. But soldiers had followed, and men with axes in their hands, and women and children in ox-drawn wains. Back to Thunder River, and still back, beyond Black River, the Aborigines had been pushed, with slaughter and massacre. But the dark-skinned people did not forget that once Kanajohara had been theirs. The guard inside the eastern gate bawled a challenge. Through a barred aperture, torchlight flickered, glinting on a steel headpiece and suspicious eyes beneath it. "'Open the gate,' snorted Conan. "'You see it's me, don't you?' Military discipline put his teeth on edge. The gate swung inward and Conan and his companion passed through. Balthus noted that the gate was flanked by a tower on each side, the summits of which rose above the stockade. He saw loopholes for arrows. The guardsmen grunted as they saw the burden borne between the men. 
their pikes jangled against each other as they thrust shut the gate, chin on shoulder, and Conan asked testily, "'Have you never seen a headless body before?' The faces of the soldiers were pallid in the torchlight. "'That's Tiberius!' blurted one. "'I recognize that fur-trimmed tunic. Valerius here owes me five lunas.' I told him Tiberius had heard the loon call when he rode through the gate on his mule with his glassy stare. I wagered he'd come back without his head. Conan grunted enigmatically, motioned Balthus to ease the litter to the ground, and then strode off toward the governor's quarters, with the Aquilonian at his heels. The tussle-headed youth stared about him eagerly and curiously, noting the rows of barracks along the walls, the stables, the tiny merchant stalls, the towering blockhouse, and the other buildings, with the open square in the middle where the soldiers drilled, and where now fires danced and men off-duty lounged. These were now hurrying to join the morbid crowd gathered about the litter at the gate. The rangy figures of Aquilonian pikemen and forest runners mingled with the shorter, stockier forms of Bosonian archers. He was not greatly surprised that the governor received them himself. Autocratic society, with its rigid caste laws, lay east of the marches. Valanus was still a young man, well-knit, with a finely chiseled countenance already carved into sober caste by toil and responsibility. "'You left the fort before daybreak, I was told,' he said to Conan. "'I had begun to fear that the Picts had caught you at last.' "'When they smote my head, the whole river will know it,' grunted Conan." They'll hear Pictish women wailing their dead as far as Velitrium. I was on a lone scout. I couldn't sleep. I kept hearing drums talking across the river. They talk each night, reminded the governor. His fine eyes shadowed as he stared closely at Conan. He had learned the unwisdom of discounting wild men's instincts. There was a difference last night, growled Conan. There has been, ever since Zogar Sag got back across the river. We should either have given him presents and sent him home, or else hanged him, sighed the governor. You advise that, but— But it's hard for you Hyborians to learn the ways of the outlands, said Conan. Well, it can't be helped now. But there'll be no peace on the border so long as Zogar lives and remembers the cell he sweated in. I was following a warrior who slipped over to put a few white notches on his bow. After I split his head, I fell in with this lad, whose name is Balthus, and who's come from the Tauran to help hold the frontier. Valanus approvingly eyed the young man's frank countenance and strongly knit frame. I am glad to welcome you, young sir. I wish more of your people would come. We need men used to forest life. Many of our soldiers and some of our settlers are from the eastern provinces and know nothing of woodcraft, or even of agricultural life. Not many of that breed this side of Elytrium, grunted Conan. That town's full of them, though. But listen, Valanus, we found Tiberius dead on the trail. And in a few words, he related the grisly affair. Valanus paled. I did not know he had left the fort. He must have been mad. He was, answered Conan, like the other four. Each one, when his time came, went mad and rushed into the woods to meet his death like a hare running down the throat of a python. 
Something called to them from the deeps of the forest, something the men call a loon, for lack of a better name, but only the doomed ones could hear it. Zogar Sags made a magic Aquilonian civilization can't overcome. To this thrust, Valanus made no reply. He wiped his brow with a shaking hand. Do the soldiers know of this? We left the body by the eastern gate. You should have concealed the fact, hidden the corpse somewhere in the woods. The soldiers are nervous enough already. They'd have found it out some way. If I'd hidden the body, it would have been returned to the fort as the corpse of Seractus was, tied up outside the gate for the men to find in the morning. Valana shuddered. Turning, he walked to a casement and stared silently out over the river, black and shiny under the glint of the stars. Beyond the river the jungle rose like an ebony wall. The distant screech of a panther broke the stillness. The night seemed pressing in, blurring the sounds of the soldiers outside the blockhouse, dimming the fires. A wind whispered through the black branches, rippling the dusky water. On its wings came a low, rhythmic pulsing, sinister as the pad of a leopard's foot. After all, said Valanus, as if speaking his thoughts aloud, what do we know, what does anyone know of the things that jungle may hide? We have dim rumors of great swamps and rivers, and a forest that stretches on and on over everlasting plains and hills to end at last on the shores of the western ocean. But what things lie between this river and that ocean we dare not even guess. No white man has ever plunged deep into that fastness and returned alive to tell us what he found. We are wise in our civilized knowledge, but our knowledge extends just so far— to the western bank of that ancient river. Who knows what shapes, earthly and unearthly, may lurk beyond the dim circle of light our knowledge has cast? Who knows what gods are worshipped under the shadows of that heathen forest, or what devils crawl out of the black ooze of the swamps? Who can be sure that all the inhabitants of that black country are natural? Zogar Sag a sage of the eastern cities would sneer at his primitive magic-making as the mummery of a fakir. Yet he has driven mad and killed five men in a manner no man can explain. I wonder if he himself is wholly human. If I can get within axe-throwing distance of him, I'll settle that question, growled Conan, helping himself to the governor's wine and pushing a glass toward Balthus, who took it hesitatingly and with an uncertain glance toward Valanus. The governor turned toward Conan and stared at him thoughtfully. The soldiers, who do not believe in ghosts or devils, he said, are almost in a panic of fear. You, who believe in ghosts, ghouls, goblins, and all manner of uncanny things, do not seem to fear any of the things in which you believe. There's nothing in the universe cold steel won't cut, answered Conan. I threw my axe at the demon, and he took no hurt. But I might have missed in the dusk, or a branch deflected its flight. I'm not going out of my way looking for devils, but I wouldn't step out of my path to let one go by. Valanus lifted his head and met Conan's gaze squarely. Conan, 
more depends on you than you realize. You know the weakness of this province, a slender wedge thrust into the untamed wilderness. You know that the lives of all the people west of the marches depend on this fort. Were it to fall, red axes would be splintering the gates of Elytrium before a horseman could cross the marches. His Majesty, or His Majesty's advisers, have ignored my pleas that more troops be sent to hold the frontier. They know nothing of border conditions and are averse to expending any more money in this direction. The fate of the frontier depends upon the men who now hold it. You know that most of the army which conquered Kanajahora has been withdrawn. You know the force left me is inadequate, especially since that devil Zogar Sag managed to poison our water supply and forty men died in one day. Many of the others are sick or have been bitten by serpents or mauled by wild beasts which seem to swarm in increasing numbers in the vicinity of the fort. The soldiers believe Zogar's boast that he could summon the forest beasts to slay his enemies. I have three hundred pikemen, four hundred Bosonian archers, and perhaps fifty men who, like yourself, are skilled in woodcraft. They are worth ten times their number of soldiers, but there are so few of them. Frankly, Conan, my situation is becoming precarious. The soldiers whisper of desertion. They are low-spirited, believing Zogar Sag has loosed devils on us. They fear the black plague with which he threatened us, the terrible black death of the swamplands. When I see a sick soldier, I sweat with fear of seeing him turn black and shrivel and die before my eyes. Conan, if the plague is loosed upon us, the soldiers will desert in a body. The border will be left unguarded, and nothing will check the sweep of the dark-skinned hordes to the very gates of Elytrium, maybe beyond. If we cannot hold the fort, how can they hold the town? Conan, Zogar Sag must die if we are to hold Kanajohara. You have penetrated the unknown deeper than any other man in the fort. You know where Guawela stands, and something of the forest trails across the river. Will you take a band of men tonight and endeavor to kill or capture him? Oh, I know, it's mad. There isn't more than one chance in a thousand that any of you will come back alive, but if we don't get him, it's death for us all. You can take as many men as you wish. A dozen men are better for a job like that than a regiment, answered Conan. Five hundred men couldn't fight their way to Guawela and back. But a dozen might slip in and out again. Let me pick my men. I don't want any soldiers. Let me go, eagerly exclaimed Balthus. I've hunted deer all my life on the Turan. All right. Balanus, we'll eat at the stall where the foresters gather, and I'll pick my men. We'll start within an hour. Drop down the river in a boat to a point below the village, and then steal upon it through the woods. If we live, we should be back by daybreak. 3. The Crawlers in the Dark The river was a vague trace between walls of ebony. The paddles that propelled the long boat creeping along in the dense shadow of the eastern bank dipped softly into the water making no more noise than the beak of a heron. The broad shoulders of the man in front of Balthus were a blur in the dense gloom, 
He knew not even the keen eyes of the man who knelt in the prow could discern anything more than a few feet ahead of them. Conan was feeling his way by instinct and an intensive familiarity with the river. No one spoke. Balthus had had a good look at his companions in the fort before they slipped out of the stockade and down the bank into the waiting canoe. They were of a new breed growing up in the world on the raw edge of the frontier, men whom grim necessity had taught woodcraft. Aquilonians of the western provinces to a man, they had many points in common. They dressed alike, in buckskin boots, leathern breeks, and deerskin shirts, with broad girdles that held axes and short swords. They were all gaunt and scarred and hard-eyed, sinewy and taciturn. They were wild men of a sort, yet there was still a wide gulf between them and the Cimmerian. They were sons of civilization, reverted to a semi-barbarism. He was a barbarian of a thousand generations of barbarians. They had acquired stealth and craft, but he had been born to these things. He excelled them even in lithe economy of motion. They were wolves, but he was a tiger. Balthus admired them and their leader, and felt a pulse of pride that he was admitted into their company. He was proud that his paddle made no more noise than did theirs. In that respect, at least, he was their equal, though woodcraft learned in hunts on the Tauran could never equal that ground into the souls of men on the savage border. Below the fort, the river made a wide bend. The lights of the outpost were quickly lost, but the canoe held on its way for nearly a mile, avoiding snags and floating logs with almost uncanny precision. Then a low grunt from their leader, and they swung its head about and glided toward the opposite shore. Emerging from the black shadows of the brush that fringed the bank and coming into the open of the midstream created a peculiar illusion of rash exposure. But the stars gave little light, and Balthus knew that unless one were watching for it, it would be all but impossible for the keenest eye to make out the shadowy shape of the canoe crossing the river. They swung in under the overhanging bushes of the western shore, and Balthus groped for and found a projecting root which he grasped. No word was spoken. All instructions had been given before the scouting party left the fort. As silently as a great panther, Conan slid over the side and vanished in the bushes. Equally noiseless, nine men followed him. To Balthus, grasping the root with his paddle across his knees, it seemed incredible that ten men should thus fade into the tangled forest with no more sound than these made. He settled himself to wait. No word passed between him and the other man who had been left with him. Somewhere, a mile or so to the northwest, Zogar Sag's village stood girdled by the thick woods. Balthus understood his orders. He and his companion were to wait for the return of the raiding party. If Conan and his men had not returned by the first tinge of dawn, they were to race back up the river to the fort and report that the forest had again taken its immemorial toll of the invading race. The silence was oppressive. 
No sound came from the black woods, invisible beyond the ebony masses that were overhanging bushes. Balthus no longer heard the drums. They had been silent for hours. He kept blinking, unconsciously trying to see through the deep gloom. The dank night smells of the river and the damp forest oppressed him. Somewhere, nearby, there was a sound as if a big fish had flopped and splashed the water. Balthus thought it must have leaped so close to the canoe that it had struck the side, for a slight quiver vibrated the craft. The boat's stern began to swing slightly away from the shore. The man behind him must have let go of the projection he was gripping. Balthus twisted his head to hiss a warning, and could just make out the figure of his companion, a slightly blacker bulk in the darkness. The man did not reply. Wondering if he had fallen asleep, Balthus reached out and grasped his shoulder. To his amazement, the man crumpled under his touch and slumped down in the canoe. Twisting his body half about, Balthus groped for him, his heart shooting into his throat. His fumbling fingers slid over the man's throat. Only the youth's convulsive clenching of his jaws choked back the cry that rose in his throat. His fingers encountered a gaping, oozing wound. His companion's throat had been cut from ear to ear. In that instant of horror and panic, Balthus started up, and then a muscular arm out of the darkness locked fiercely about his throat, strangling his yell. The canoe rocked wildly. Balthus's knife was in his hand, though he did not remember jerking it out of his boot, and he stabbed fiercely and blindly. He felt the blade sink deep, and a fiendish yell rang in his ear, a yell that was horribly answered. The darkness seemed to come to life about him. A bestial clamor rose on all sides, and other arms grappled him. Born under a mass of hurtling bodies, the canoe rolled sideways, but before he went under with it, something cracked against Bathus's head, and the night was briefly illuminated by a blinding burst of fire before it gave way to a blackness where not even stars shone. 4. The Beasts of Zogar Sag Fires dazzled Balthus again as he slowly recovered his senses. He blinked, shook his head. Their glare hurt his eyes. A confused medley of sound rose about him, growing more distinct as his senses cleared. He lifted his head and stared stupidly about him. Black figures hemmed him in, etched against crimson tongues of flame. Memory and understanding came in a rush. He was bound upright to a post in an open space, ringed by fierce and terrible figures. Beyond that ring, fires burned tended by naked, dark-skinned women. Beyond the fires he saw huts of mud and wattle, thatched with brush. Beyond the huts there was a stockade with a broad gate, but he saw these things only incidentally. Even the cryptic dark women with their curious coiffures were noted by him only absently. His full attention was fixed in awful fascination on the men who stood glaring at him. Short men broad-shouldered, deep-chested, lean-hipped. They were naked except for scanty loincloths. The firelight brought out the play of their swelling muscles in bold relief. 
Their dark faces were immobile, but their narrow eyes glittered with the fire that burns in the eyes of a stalking tiger. Their tangled manes were bound back with bands of copper. Swords and axes were in their hands. Crude bandages banded the limbs of some, and smears of blood were dried on their dark skins. There had been fighting, recent and deadly. His eyes wavered away from the steady glare of his captors, and he repressed a cry of horror. A few feet away there rose a low, hideous pyramid. It was built of gory human heads. Dead eyes glared glassily up at the black sky. Numbly he recognized the countenances which were turned toward him. They were the heads of the men who had followed Conan into the forest. He could not tell if the Cimmerian's head were among them. Only a few faces were visible to him. It looked to him as if there must be ten or eleven heads at least. A deadly sickness assailed him. He fought a desire to wretch. Beyond the heads lay the bodies of half a dozen Picts, and he was aware of a fierce exultation at the sight. The forest runners had taken toll, at least. Twisting his head away from the ghastly spectacle, he became aware that another post stood near him, a stake painted black as the one to which he was bound. A man sagged in his bonds there, naked except for his leathern breeks, whom Balthus recognized as one of Conan's woodsmen. Blood trickled from his mouth, oozed sluggishly from a gash in his side. Lifting his head, he licked his livid lips and muttered, making himself heard with difficulty above the fiendish clamor of the Picts. So they got you, too. Sneaked up in the water and cut the other fellow's throat, groaned Balthus. We never heard them till they were on us. Mitra, how can anything move so silently? They're devils, mumbled the frontiersman. They must have been watching us from the time we left midstream. We walked into a trap. Arrows from all sides were ripping into us before we knew it. Most of us dropped the first fire. Three or four broke through the bushes and came to hand grips. But there were too many. Conan might have gotten away. I haven't seen his head. Been better for you and me if they'd killed us outright. I can't blame Conan. Ordinarily, we'd have gotten to the village without being discovered. They don't keep spies on the riverbank as far down as we landed. We must have stumbled into a big party coming up the river from the south. Some devilment is up. Too many Picts here. These aren't all Gwawele. Men from the western tribes here, and from up and down the river. Balthus stared at the ferocious shapes. Little as he knew of Pictish ways, he was aware that the number of men clustered about them was out of proportion to the size of the village. There were not enough huts to have accommodated them all. Then he noticed that there was a difference in the barbaric tribal designs painted on their faces and breasts. Some kind of devilment, muttered the forest runner. They might have gathered here to watch Zogar's magic-making. He'll make some rare magic with our carcasses. Well... A border man doesn't expect to die in bed. But I wish we'd gone out along with the rest. The wolfish howling of the Picts rose in volume and exultation. 
and from a movement in their ranks, an eager surging and crowding. Balthus deduced that someone of importance was coming. Twisting his head about, he saw that the stakes were set before a long building, larger than the other huts, decorated by human skulls dangling from the eaves. Through the door of that structure now danced a fantastic figure. Zogar, muttered the woodsman, his bloody countenance set in wolfish lines as he unconsciously strained at his cords. Balthus saw a lean figure of middle height, almost hidden in ostrich plumes set on a harness of leather and copper. From amidst the plumes peered a hideous and malevolent face. The plumes puzzled Balthus. He knew their source lay half the width of a world to the south. They fluttered and rustled evilly as the shaman leaped and cavorted. With fantastic bounds and prancings, he entered the ring and whirled before his bound and silent captives. With another man it would have seemed ridiculous, a foolish savage prancing meaninglessly in a whirl of feathers. But that ferocious face, glaring out from the billowing mass, gave the scene a grim significance. No man with a face like that could seem ridiculous, or like anything except the devil he was. Suddenly he froze to statuesque stillness. The plumes rippled once and sank about him. The howling warriors fell silent. Zogar Sag stood erect and motionless and he seemed to increase in height, to grow and expand. Balthus experienced the illusion that the Pict was towering above him, staring contemptuously down from a great height, though he knew the shaman was not as tall as himself. He shook off the illusion with difficulty. The shaman was talking now, a harsh, guttural intonation that yet carried the hiss of a cobra, he thrust his head on his long neck toward the wounded man on the stake. His eyes shone red as blood in the firelight. For answer, the frontiersman spat full in his face. With a fiendish howl, Zogar bounded convulsively into the air, and the warriors gave tongue to a yell that shuddered up to the stars that peered over the tops of the great trees girdling the village. They rushed toward the man on the stake, but the shaman beat them back. A snarled command sent men running to the gate. They hurled it open, turned, and raced back to the circle. The ring of men split, divided with desperate haste to right and left. Balthus saw the women and naked children scurrying to the huts. They peeked out of doors and windows. A broad lane was left to the open gate beyond which loomed the black forest, crowding sullenly in upon the clearing, unlighted by the fires. A tense silence reigned as Zogar Sag turned toward the forest, raised on his tiptoes, and sent a weird, inhuman call shuddering out into the night. Somewhere, far out in the black forest, a deeper cry answered him. Balthus shuddered, from the timber of that cry, he knew it never came from a human throat. He remembered what Valanus had said, that Zogar boasted that he could summon wild beasts to do his bidding. The woodsman was livid beneath his mask of blood. He licked his lips spasmodically. 
the village held its breath. Zogar Sag stood still as a statue, his plumes trembling faintly about him. But suddenly, the gate was no longer empty. A shuddering gasp swept over the village, and men crowded hastily back, jamming each other between the huts. Balthus felt the short hair stir on his scalp. The creature that stood in the gate was like the embodiment of nightmare legend. Its color was of a curious pale quality, which made it seem ghostly and unreal in the dim light. But there was nothing unreal about the low-hung savage head and the great curved fangs that glistened in the firelight. On noiseless padded feet it approached like a phantom out of the past. It was a survival of an older, grimmer age, the ogre of many an ancient legend, a saber-toothed tiger. No Hyborian hunter had looked upon one of those primordial brutes for centuries. Immemorial myths lent the creatures a supernatural quality, induced by their ghostly color and their fiendish ferocity. The beast that glided toward the men on the stakes was longer and heavier than a common striped tiger, almost as bulky as a bear. Its shoulders and forelegs were so massive and mightily muscled as to give it a curiously top-heavy look, though its hindquarters were more powerful than those of a lion. Its jaws were massive, but its head was brutishly shaped. Its brain capacity was small. It had room for no instincts except those of destruction. It was a freak of carnivorous development, evolution run amuck in a horror of fangs and talons. This was the monstrosity Zogar Sag had summoned out of the forest. Balthus no longer doubted the actuality of the shaman's magic. Only the black arts could establish a domination over that tiny-brained, mightily-thewed monster. Like a whisper at the back of his consciousness rose the vague memory of the name of an ancient, ancient god of darkness and primordial fear, to whom once both men and beasts bowed, and whose children, men whispered, still lurked in dark corners of the world. New horror tinged the glare he fixed on Zogar Sag. The monster moved past the heap of bodies on the pile of gory heads without appearing to notice them. He was no scavenger. He hunted only the living, in a life dedicated solely to slaughter. An awful hunger burned greenly in the wide, unwinking eyes, the hunger not alone of belly emptiness, but the lust of death-dealing. His gaping jaws slavered. The shaman stepped back, his hand waved toward the woodsman. The great cat sank into a crouch, and Balthus numbly remembered tales of its appalling ferocity, of how it would spring upon an elephant and drive its sword-like fangs so deeply into the titan's skull that they could never be withdrawn, but would keep it nailed to its victim, to die by starvation. The shaman cried out shrilly, and with an ear-shattering roar the monster sprang. Balthus had never dreamed of such a spring— such a hurtling of incarnated destruction embodied in that giant bulk of iron thews and ripping talons. Full on the woodsman's breast it struck, and the stake splintered and snapped at the base, crushing to the earth under the impact. 
Then the saber-tooth was gliding toward the gate, half-dragging, half-carrying a hideous crimson hulk that only faintly resembled a man. Balthus glared almost paralyzed, his brain refusing to credit what his eyes had seen. In that leap the great beast had not only broken off the stake, it had ripped the mangled body of its victim from the post to which it was bound. The huge talons in that instant of contact had disemboweled and partially dismembered the man, and the giant fangs had torn away the whole top of his head, shearing through the skull as easily as through flesh. Stout rawhide thongs had given way like paper, where the thongs had held, flesh and bones had not. Balthus wretched suddenly. He had hunted bears and panthers, but he had never dreamed the beast lived which could make such a red ruin of a human frame in the flicker of an instant. The saber-tooth vanished through the gate, and a few moments later a deep roar sounded through the forest, receding in the distance. But the Picts still shrank back against the huts, and the shaman still stood facing the gate that was like a black opening to let in the night. Cold sweat burst suddenly out on Balthus's skin. What new horror would come through that gate to make carrion meat of his body? Sick panic assailed him, and he strained futilely at his thongs. The night pressed in very black and horrible outside the firelight. The fires themselves glowed lurid as the fires of hell. He felt the eyes of the Picts upon him, hundreds of hungry, cruel eyes that reflected the lust of souls utterly without humanity as he knew it. They no longer seemed men. They were devils of this black jungle, as inhuman as the creatures to which the fiend and the nodding plumes screamed through the darkness. Zogar sent another call shuddering through the night, and it was utterly unlike the first cry. There was a hideous sibilance in it. Balthus turned cold the implication. If a serpent could hiss that loud, it would make just such a sound. This time there was no answer. Only a period of breathless silence in which the pound of Balthus's heart strangled him, and then there sounded a swishing outside the gate, a dry rustling that sent chills down Balthus's spine. Again the firelit gate held a hideous occupant. Again Balthus recognized the monster from ancient legends. He saw and knew the ancient and evil serpent which swayed there, its wedge-shaped head huge as that of a horse, as high as a tall man's head, and its palely gleaming barrel rippling out behind it. A forked tongue darted in and out, and the firelight glittered on bared fangs. Balthus became incapable of emotion. The horror of his fate paralyzed him. That was the reptile that the ancients called Ghost Snake, the pale, abominable terror that of old glided into huts by night to devour whole families. Like the python, it crushed its victim, but unlike other constrictors, its fangs bore venom that carried madness and death. It, too, had long been considered extinct, but Valanus had spoken truly. No white man knew what shapes haunted the great forests beyond Black River. It came on silently, rippling over the ground, 
its hideous head on the same level, its neck curving back slightly for the stroke. Balthus gazed with glazed, hypnotized stare into that loathsome gullet down which he would soon be engulfed, and he was aware of no sensation except a vague nausea. And then something that glinted in the firelight streaked from the shadows of the huts, and the great reptile whipped about and went into instant convulsions. As in a dream, Balthus saw a short throwing spear transfixing the mighty neck just below the gaping jaws. The shaft protruded from one side, the steel head from the other. Knotting and looping hideously, the maddened reptile rolled into the circle of men who strove back from him. The spear had not severed its spine, but merely transfixed its great neck muscles. Its furiously lashing tail mowed down a dozen men, and its jaws snapped convulsively, splashing others with venom that burned like liquid fire. Howling, cursing, screaming, frantic, they scattered before it, knocking each other down in their flight, trampling the fallen, bursting through the huts. The giant snake rolled into a fire, scattering sparks and brands, and the pain lashed it to more frenzied efforts. A hut wall buckled under the ram-like impact of its flailing tail, disgorging howling people. Men stampeded through the fires, knocking the logs right and left. The flames sprang up, then sank. A reddish dim glow was all that lighted that nightmare scene where the giant reptile whipped and rolled, and men clawed and shrieked in frantic flight. Balthus felt something jerk at his wrists, and then, miraculously, he was free, and a strong hand dragged him behind the post. Dazedly, he saw Conan, felt the forest man's iron grip on his arm. There was blood on the Cimmerian's mail, dried blood on the sword in his right hand. He loomed dim and gigantic in the shadowy light. Come on! before they get over their panic. Balthus felt the haft of an axe shoved into his hand. Zogar Sag had disappeared. Conan dragged Balthus after him until the youth's numb brain awoke and his legs began to move of their own accord. Then Conan released him and ran into the building where the skulls hung. Balthus followed him. He got a glimpse of a grim stone altar, faintly lighted by the glow outside. Five human heads grinned on that altar, and there was a grisly familiarity about the features of the freshest. It was the head of the merchant Tiberius. Behind the altar was an idol, dim, indistinct, bestial, yet vaguely manlike in outline. Then fresh horror choked Balthus as the shape heaved up suddenly with a rattle of chains, lifting long misshapen arms in the gloom. Conan's sword flailed down, crunching through flesh and bone, and then the Cimmerian was dragging Balthus around the altar, past a huddled shaggy bulk on the floor, to a door at the back of the long hut. Through this they burst, out into the enclosure again, but a few yards beyond them loomed the stockade. It was dark behind the altar hut. The mad stampede of the Picts had not carried them in that direction. At the wall, Conan halted, gripped Balthus, and heaved him at arm's length in the air as he might have lifted a child. Balthus grasped the points of the upright logs set in the sun-dried mud and scrambled up on them, ignoring the havoc done his skin. He lowered a hand to the Cimmerian, 
when around the corner of the altar hut sprang a fleeing Pict. He halted short, glimpsing the man on the wall in the faint glow of the fires. Conan hurled his axe with deadly aim, but the warrior's mouth was already open for a yell of warning, and it rang loud above the din, cut short as he dropped with a shattered skull. Blind terrors had not submerged all ingrained instincts. As that wild yell rose above the clamor, there was an instant's lull, and then a hundred throats bade ferocious answer, and warriors came leaping to repel the attack presaged by the warning. Conan leaped high, caught not Balthus's hand, but his arm near the shoulder, and swung himself up. Balthus set his teeth against the strain, and then the Cimmerian was on the wall beside him, and the fugitives dropped down on the other side. 5. The Children of Jebel Sag Which way is the river? Balthus was confused. We don't dare try for the river now, grunted Conan. The woods between the village and the river are swarming with warriors. Come on, we'll head in the last direction they'll expect us to go. West! Looking back as they entered the thick growth, Balthus beheld the wall dotted with black heads as the savages peered over. The Picts were bewildered. They had not gained the wall in time to see the fugitives take cover. They had rushed to the wall expecting to repel an attack in force. They had seen the body of the dead warrior, but no enemy was in sight. Balthus realized that they did not yet know their prisoner had escaped. From other sounds, he believed that the warriors, directed by the shrill voice of Zogar Sag, were destroying the wounded serpent with arrows. The monster was out of the shaman's control. A moment later, the quality of the yells was altered. Screeches of rage rose in the night. Conan laughed grimly. He was leading Balthus along a narrow trail that ran west under the black branches, stepping as swiftly and surely as if he trod a well-lighted thoroughfare. Balthus stumbled after him, guiding himself by feeling the dense wall on either hand. They'll be after us now. Zogar's discovered you're gone, and he knows my head wasn't in the pile before the altar hut. The dog. If I'd had another spear, I'd have thrown it through him before I struck the snake. Keep to the trail. They can't track us by torchlight, and there are a score of paths leading from the village. They'll follow those leading to the river first. Throw a cordon of warriors for miles along the bank, expecting us to try to break through. We won't take to the woods until we have to. We can make better time on this trail. Now buckle down to it and run as you never ran before. They got over their panic, cursed quick, panted Balthus, complying with a fresh burst of speed. They're not afraid of anything very long, grunted Conan. For a space, nothing was said between them. The fugitives devoted all their attention to covering distance. They were plunging deeper and deeper into the wilderness and getting further away from civilization at every step, but Balthus did not question Conan's wisdom. The Cimmerian presently took time to grunt, "'When we're far enough away from the village, we'll swing back to the river in a big circle. No other village within miles of Guawela. All the Picts are gathered in that vicinity. We'll circle wide around them. They can't track us until daylight.' They'll pick up our path then, but before dawn we'll leave the trail and take to the woods. They plunged on. 
the yells died out behind them. Balthus's breath was whistling through his teeth. He felt a pain in his side. Running became torture. He blundered against the bushes on each side of the trail. Conan pulled up suddenly, turned, and stared back down the dim path. Somewhere the moon was rising, a dim white glow amidst a tangle of branches. "'Shall we take to the woods?' panted Balthus. "'Give me your axe,' murmured Conan softly. "'Something is close behind us.' "'Then we'd better leave the trail,' exclaimed Balthus. Conan shook his head and drew his companion into a dense thicket. The moon rose higher, making a dim light in the path. "'We can't fight the whole tribe,' whispered Balthus. "'No human being could have found our trail so quickly, or followed us so swiftly,' muttered Conan. "'Keep silent.' There followed a tense silence, in which Balthus felt that his heart could be heard pounding from miles away. Then, abruptly, without a sound to announce its coming, a savage head appeared in the dim path. Balthus's heart jumped into his throat. At first glance he feared to look upon the awful head of the saber-tooth. But this head was smaller, more narrow. It was a leopard which stood there, snarling silently and glaring down the trail. What wind there was was blowing toward the hiding men, concealing their scent. The beast lowered his head and snuffed the trail, then moved forward uncertainly. A chill played down Balthus's spine. The brute was undoubtedly trailing them. And it was suspicious. It lifted its head, its eyes glowing like balls of fire, and growled low in its throat. And at that instant Conan hurled the axe. All the weight of arm and shoulder was behind the throw and the axe was a streak of silver in the dim moon. Almost before he realized what had happened, Balthus saw the leopard rolling on the ground in its death throes, the handle of the axe standing up from its head. The head of the weapon had split its narrow skull. Conan bounded from the bushes, wrenched his axe free, and dragged the limp body in among the trees, concealing it from the casual glance. "'Now let's go, and go fast!' he grunted, leading away southward, away from the trail. There'll be warriors coming after that cat. As soon as he got his wits back, Zogar sent him after us. The Picts would follow him, but he'd leave them far behind. He'd circle the village until he hit our trail and then come after us like a streak. They couldn't keep up with him, but they'll have an idea as to our general direction. They'd follow, listening for his cry. Well, they won't hear that, but they'll find the blood on the trail and look around and find the body in the brush. They'll pick up our spoor there if they can. Walk with care. He avoided clinging briars and low-hanging branches effortlessly, gliding between trees without touching the stems, and always planting his feet in the places calculated to show less evidence of his passing. But with Balthus it was slower, more laborious work. No sound came from behind them. They had covered more than a mile when Balthus said, Does Zogar Sag catch leopard cubs and train them for bloodhounds? Conan shook his head. That was a leopard he called out of the woods. But, Balthus persisted, if he can order the beasts to do his bidding, why doesn't he rouse them all and have them after us? 
The forest is full of leopards. Why send only one after us? Conan did not reply for a space, and when he did, it was with a curious reticence. He can't command all the animals. Only such as remember Jabal Sag. Jabal Sag? Balthus repeated the ancient name hesitantly. He had never heard it spoken more than three or four times in his whole life. Once all living things worshipped him. That was long ago when beasts and men spoke one language. Men have forgotten him. Even the beasts forget. Only a few remember. The men who remember Jabal Sag and the beasts who remember are brothers and speak the same tongue. Balthus did not reply. He had strained at a Pictish stake and seen the nighted jungle give up its fanged horrors at a shaman's call. Civilized men laugh, said Conan, but not one can tell me how Zogar Sag can call pythons and tigers and leopards out of the wilderness and make them do his bidding. They would say it is a lie if they dared. That's the way with civilized men. When they can't explain something by their half-baked science, they refuse to believe it. The people on the Tauran were closer to the primitive than most Aquilonians. Superstitions persisted, whose sources were lost in antiquity. And Balthus had seen that which still prickled his flesh. He could not refute the monstrous thing which Conan's words implied. I have heard that there's an ancient grove sacred to Jabal Sag somewhere in this forest, said Conan. I don't know. I've never seen it. But more beasts remember in this country than any I've ever seen. Then others will be on our trail? They are now, was Conan's disquieting answer. Zogar would never leave our tracking to one beast alone. What are we to do, then? asked Balthus uneasily, grasping his axe as he stared at the gloomy arches above them. His flesh crawled with a momentary expectation of ripping talons and fangs leaping from the shadows. Wait! Conan turned, squatted, and with his knife began scratching a curious symbol in the mold. Stooping to look at it over his shoulder, Balthus felt a crawling of the flesh along his spine. He knew not why. He felt no wind against his face, but there was a rustling of leaves above them, and a weird moaning swept ghostily through the branches. Conan glanced up inscrutably, then rose and stood, staring somberly down at the symbol he had drawn. "'What is it?' whispered Balthus. It looked archaic and meaningless to him. He supposed that it was his ignorance of artistry which prevented his identifying it as one of the conventional designs of some prevailing culture. But had he been the most erudite artist in the world, he would have been no nearer the solution. I saw it carved in the rock of a cave no human had visited for a million years, muttered Conan, in the uninhabited mountains beyond the Sea of Vilayet, half a world away from this spot. Later, I saw a black witch-finder of Cush scratch it in the sand of a nameless river. He told me part of its meaning. It's sacred to Jabal Sag and the creatures which worship him. Watch. They drew back among the dense foliage some yards away and waited in tense silence.
To the east, drums muttered, and somewhere to north and west, other drums answered. Balthus shivered, though he knew long miles of black forest separated him from the grim beaters of those drums, whose dull pulsing was a sinister overture that set the dark stage for bloody drama. Balthus found himself holding his breath. Then, with a slight shaking of the leaves, the bushes parted and a magnificent panther came into view. The moonlight dappling through the leaves shone on its glossy coat, rippling with the play of the great muscles beneath it. With its head held low, it glided toward them. It was smelling out their trail. Then it halted, as if frozen, its muzzle almost touching the symbol cut in the mold. For a long space it crouched motionless. It flattened its long body and laid its head on the ground before the mark. And Balthus felt the short hairs stir on his scalp. For the attitude of the great carnivore was one of awe and adoration. Then the panther rose and backed away carefully, belly almost to the ground. With his hindquarters among the bushes, he wheeled as if in sudden panic and was gone like a flash of dappled light. Balthus mopped his brow with a trembling hand and glanced at Conan. The barbarian's eyes were smoldering with fires that never lit the eyes of men bred to the ideas of civilization. In that instant he was all wild and had forgotten the man at his side. In his burning gaze Balthus glimpsed and vaguely recognized pristine images and half-embodied memories, shadows from life's dawn, forgotten and repudiated by sophisticated races, ancient primeval phantasms unnamed and nameless. Then the deeper fires were masked, and Conan was silently leading the way deeper into the forest. We've no more to fear from the beasts, he said after a while but we've left a sign for men to read. They won't follow our trail very easily, and until they find that symbol, they won't know for sure we've turned south. Even then it won't be easy to smell us without the beasts to aid them. But the woods south of the trail will be full of warriors looking for us. If we keep moving after daylight, we'll be sure to run into some of them. As soon as we find a good place, we'll hide and wait until another night to swing back and make the river. We've got to warn Valanus, but it won't help him any if we get ourselves killed. Warn Valanus? Hell, the woods along the river are swarming with Picts. That's why they got us. Zogar's brewing war magic. No mere raid this time. He's done something no Pict has done in my memory united as many as fifteen or sixteen clans. His magic did it. They'll follow a wizard farther than they will a war chief. You saw the mob in the village, and there were hundreds hiding along the riverbank that you didn't see. More coming from the farther villages. He'll have at least three thousand fighting men. I lay in the bushes and heard their talk as they went past. They mean to attack the fort, when, I don't know, and they won't delay long. Zogar doesn't care. He's gathered them and whipped them into a frenzy. If he doesn't lead them into battle quickly, they'll fall to quarreling with each other. They're like blood-mad tigers. I don't know whether they can take the fort or not. Anyway, 
we've got to get back across the river and give the warning. The settlers on the Velitrium Road must either get into the fort or back to Velitrium. While the Picts are besieging the fort, war parties will range the road far to the east, might even cross Thunder River and raid the thickly settled country behind Velitrium. As he talked, he was leading the way deeper and deeper into the ancient wilderness. Presently he grunted with satisfaction. They had reached a spot where the underbrush was more scattered, and an outcropping of stone was visible, wandering off southward. Balthus felt more secure as they followed it. Not even a Pict could trail them over naked rock. "'How did you get away?' he asked presently. Conan tapped his mail shirt and helmet. "'If more borderers would wear harness, there'd be fewer skulls hanging on the altar huts. But most men make noise if they wear armor.' They were waiting on each side of the path, without moving. And when a Pict stands motionless, the very beasts of the forest pass him without seeing him. They'd seen us crossing the river and got in their places. If they'd gone into ambush after we left the bank, I'd have had some hint of it. But they were waiting, and not even a leaf trembled. The devil himself couldn't have suspected anything. The first suspicion I had was when I heard a shaft rasp against a bow as it was pulled back. I dropped and yelled for the men behind me to drop. But they were too slow, taken by surprise like that. Most of them fell at the first volley that raked us from both sides. Some of the arrows crossed the trail and struck picts on the other side. I heard them howl. He grinned with vicious satisfaction. Such of us as were left plunged into the woods and closed with them. When I saw the others were all down or taken, I broke through and outfooted the painted devils through the darkness. They were all around me. I ran and crawled and sneaked, and sometimes I lay on my belly under the bushes while they passed me on all sides. I tried for the shore and found it lined with them, waiting for just such a move but I'd have cut my way through and taken a chance on swimming, only I heard the drums pounding in the village and knew they'd taken somebody alive. They were all so engrossed in Zogar's magic that I was able to climb the wall behind the altar hut. There was a warrior supposed to be watching at that point, but he was squatting behind the hut and peering around the corner at the ceremony. I came up behind him and broke his neck with my hands before he knew what was happening. It was his spear I threw into the snake, and that's his axe you're carrying. But what was that... that thing you killed in the altar hut? asked Balthus, with a shiver at the memory of the dim-seen horror. One of Zogar's gods. One of Jabal's children that didn't remember and had to be kept chained to the altar. A bull ape. The Picts think they're sacred to the hairy one who lives on the moon the gorilla god of Gala. It's getting light. Here's a good place to hide until we see how close they're on our trail. Probably have to wait until night to break back to the river. A low hill pitched upward, girdled and covered by thick trees and bushes. Near the crest, Conan slid into a tangle of jutting rocks, crowned by dense bushes. Lying among them, they could see the jungle below without being seen. It was a good place to hide or defend. 
Balthus did not believe that even a Pict could have trailed them over the rocky ground for the past four or five miles, but he was afraid of the beasts that obeyed Zogar Sag. His faith in the curious symbol wavered a little now, but Conan had dismissed the possibility of beasts tracking them. A ghostly whiteness spread through the dense branches. The patches of sky, visible, altered in hue, grew from pink to blue. Balthus felt the gnawing of hunger, though he had slaked his thirst at a stream they had skirted. There was complete silence except for an occasional chirp of a bird. The drums were no longer to be heard. Balthus's thoughts reverted to the grim scene before the altar hut. Those were ostrich plumes Zogar Sag wore, he said. I've seen them on the helmets of knights who rode from the east to visit the barons of the marches. There are no ostriches in this forest, are there? They came from Kush, answered Conan. West of here, many marches, lies the seashore. Ships from Zingara occasionally come and trade weapons and ornaments and wine to the coastal tribes for skins and copper ore and gold dust. Sometimes they trade ostrich plumes they got from the Stygians, who in turn got them from the black tribes of Kush, which lies south of Stygia. The Pictish shamans place great store in them, but there's more risk in such trade. The Picts are too likely to try to seize the ship, and the coast is dangerous to ships. I've sailed along it when I was with the pirates of the Barakan Isles, which lies southwest of Zingara. Balthus looked at his companion with admiration. I knew you hadn't spent your life on this frontier. You've mentioned several far places. You've traveled widely? I have roamed far, farther than any other man of my race ever wandered. I've seen all the great cities of the Hyborians, the Shemites, the Stygians, and the Hyrcanians. I have roamed in the unknown countries south of the black kingdoms of Cush and east of the Sea of Vilayette. I've been mercenary captain, a corsair, a Cossack, a penniless vagabond, a general. Hell, I've been everything except a king, and I may be that before I die. The fancy pleased him, and he grinned hardly. Then he shrugged his shoulders and stretched his mighty figure on the rocks. This is as good life as any. I don't know how long I'll stay on the frontier. A week, a month, a year. I have a roving foot. But it's as well on the border as anywhere. Balthus set himself to watch the forest below them. Momentarily he expected to see fierce painted faces thrust through the leaves. But as the hours passed, no stealthy footfall disturbed the brooding quiet. Balthus believed the Picts had missed their trail and given up the chase. Conan grew restless. We should have sighted parties scouring the woods for us. If they've quit the chase, it's because they're after bigger game. They may be gathering to cross the river and storm the fort. Would they come this far south if they lost the trail? They've lost the trail, all right. Otherwise, they'd have been on our necks before now. Under ordinary circumstances, they'd scour the woods for miles in every direction. Some of them should have passed within sight of this hill. They must be preparing to cross the river. We've got to take a chance and make for the river. 
creeping down the rocks. Balthus felt his flesh crawl between his shoulders as he momentarily expected a withering blast of arrows from the green masses about them. He feared that the Picts had discovered them and were lying about in ambush. But Conan was convinced no enemies were near, and the Cimmerian was right. "'We're miles to the south of the village,' grunted Conan. "'We'll hit straight through for the river. "'I don't know how far down the river they've spread. "'We'll hope to hit it below them.' "'With haste that seemed reckless to Balthus, they hurried eastward. "'The woods seemed empty of life. "'Conan believed that all the Picts were gathered in the vicinity of Guawela, "'if, indeed, they had not already crossed the river.' He did not believe they would cross in the daytime, however. Some woodsmen would be sure to see them and give the alarm. They'll cross above and below the fort, out of sight of the sentries. Then others will get in canoes and make straight across for the river wall. As soon as they attack, those hidden in the woods on the east shore will assail the fort from the other sides. They've tried that before and got the guts shot and hacked out of them but this time they've got enough men to make a real onslaught of it. They pushed on without pausing, though Balthus gazed longingly at the squirrels flitting among the branches, which he could have brought down with a cast of his axe. With a sigh he drew up his broad belt. The everlasting silence and gloom of the primitive forest was beginning to depress him. He found himself thinking of the open oak groves and sun-dappled meadows of the Tauran of the bluff cheer of his father's steep-thatched diamond-paned house, of the fat cows browsing through the deep lush grass, and the hearty fellowship of the brawny, bare-armed plowmen and herdsmen. He felt lonely in spite of his companion. Conan was as much a part of this wilderness as Balthus was alien to it. The Cimmerian might have spent years among the great cities of the world, he might have walked with the rulers of civilization. He might even achieve his wild whim some day and rule as king of a civilized nation. Stranger things had happened. But he was no less a barbarian. He was concerned only with the naked fundamentals of life, the warm intimacies of small, kindly things, the sentiments and delicious trivialities that make up so much of civilized men's lives were meaningless to him. A wolf was no less a wolf because a whim of chance caused him to run with the watchdogs. Bloodshed and violence and savagery were the natural elements of the life Conan knew. He could not, and would never, understand the little things that are so dear to the souls of civilized men and women. The shadows were lengthening when they reached the river and peered through the masking bushes. They could see up and down the river for about a mile each way. The sullen stream lay bare and empty. Conan scowled across at the other shore. We've got to take another chance here. We've got to skirt the river. We don't know whether they've crossed or not. The woods over there may be alive with them. We've got to risk it. We're about six miles south of Guawela. He wheeled and ducked as a bowstring twanged. Something like a white flash of light streaked through the bushes. Balthus knew it was an arrow. Then, with a tigerish bound, Conan was through the bushes. Balthus caught the gleam of steel as he whirled his sword and heard a death scream. 
the next instant he had broken through the bushes after the Cimmerian. A Pict with a shattered skull lay face down on the ground, his fingers spasmodically clawing at the grass. Half a dozen others were swarming about Conan, swords and axes lifted. They had cast away their bows, useless at such deadly close quarters. Their lower jaws were painted white, contrasting vividly with their dark faces, and the designs on their muscular breasts differed from any Balthus had ever seen. One of them hurled his axe at Balthus and rushed after it with lifted knife. Balthus ducked and then caught the wrist that drove the knife licking at his throat. They went to the ground together, rolling over and over. The Pict was like a wild beast, his muscles hard as steel strings. Balthus was striving to maintain his hold on the wild man's wrist and bring his own axe into play, but so fast and furious was the struggle that each attempt to strike was blocked. The Pict was wrenching furiously to free his knife hand, was clutching at Balthus's axe and driving his knees at the youth's groin. Suddenly he attempted to shift his knife to his free hand, and in that instant Balthus, struggling up on one knee, split the painted head with a desperate blow of his axe. He sprang up and glared wildly about for his companion, expecting to see him overwhelmed by numbers. Then he realized the full strength and ferocity of the Cimmerian. Conan bestrode two of his attackers, shorn half asunder by that terrible broadsword. As Balthus looked, he saw the Cimmerian beat down a thrusting short-sword, avoid the stroke of an axe with a cat-like sideways spring which brought him within arm's length of a squat savage stooping for a bow. Before the Pict could straighten, the red sword flailed down and clove him from shoulder to mid-breastbone with a blade stuck. The remaining warriors rushed in, one from each side. Balthus hurled his axe with an accuracy that reduced the attackers to one, and Conan, abandoning his efforts to free his sword, wheeled and met the remaining Pict with his bare hands. The stocky warrior, a head shorter than his tall enemy, leaped in, striking with his axe, at the same time stabbing murderously with his knife. The knife broke on the Cimmerian's mail, and the axe checked in mid-air as Conan's fingers locked like iron on the descending arm. A bone snapped loudly and Balthus saw the Pict wince and falter. The next instant he was swept off his feet, lifted high above the Cimmerian's head. He writhed in midair for an instant, kicking and thrashing, and then was dashed headlong to the earth with such force that he rebounded, and then lay still, his limp posture telling of splintered limbs and a broken spine. "'Come on!' Conan wrenched his sword free and snatched up an axe, Grab a bow and a handful of arrows, and hurry! We've got to trust our heels again. That yell was heard. They'll be here in no time. If we tried to swim across now, they'd feather us with arrows before we reached midstream. Up the river sounded a fierce howling. Balthus shuddered to think that it came from human mouths. Grasping the weapons he had snatched, he followed Conan, who plunged into the thickets away from the bank, and ran like a flying shadow. 6. Red Axes on the Border Conan did not plunge deeply into the forest. A few hundred yards from the river, he altered his slanting course and ran parallel with it. 
Balthus recognized a grim determination not to be hunted away from the river which they must cross if they were to warn the men in the fort. Behind them rose more loudly the yells of the forest men. Balthus believed the Picts had reached the glade where the bodies of the slain men lay. Then further yells seemed to indicate that the savages were streaming into the woods in pursuit. They had left a trail any Pict could follow. Conan increased his speed, and Balthus grimly set his teeth and kept on his heels, though he felt he might collapse any time. It seemed centuries since he had eaten last. He kept going more by an effort of will than anything else. His blood was pounding so furiously in his eardrums that he was not aware when the yells died out behind them. Conan halted suddenly. Balthus leaned against a tree and panted. They've quit, grunted the Cimmerian, scowling. Sneaking up on us, gasped Balthus. Conan shook his head. A short chase like this they'd yell every step of the way. No, they've gone back. I thought I heard somebody yelling behind them a few seconds before the noise began to get dimmer. They've been recalled, and that's good for us, but damned bad for the men in the fort. It means the warriors are being summoned out of the woods for the attack. Those men we ran into were warriors from a tribe down the river. They were undoubtedly headed for Guawela to join in the assault on the fort. Damn it, we're further away than ever now. We've got to get across the river. Turning east, he hurried through the thickets with no attempt at concealment. Balthus followed him, for the first time feeling the sting of lacerations on his breast and shoulder where the Pict's savage teeth had scored him. He was pushing through the thick bushes that fringed the bank when Conan pulled him back. Then he heard a rhythmic splashing, and peering through the leaves saw a dugout canoe coming up the river, its single occupant paddling hard against the current. He was a strongly built pick with a white heron feather thrust in a copper band that confined his square-cut mane. "'That's a Guawela man,' muttered Conan, emissary from Zogar. White plume shows that. He's carried a peace talk to the tribes down the river, and now he's trying to get back and take a hand in the slaughter. The lone ambassador was now almost even with their hiding place, and suddenly Balthus almost jumped out of his skin. At his very ear had sounded the harsh gutturals of a Pict. Then he realized that Conan had called to the paddler in his own tongue. The man started scanned the bushes and called back something, then cast a startled glance across the river, bent low, and sent the canoe shooting in toward the western bank. Not understanding, Balthus saw Conan take from his hand the bow he had picked up in the glade and notch an arrow. The Pict had run his canoe in close to the shore and, staring up into the bushes, called out something. His answer came in the twang of the bowstring the streaking flight of the arrow that sank to the feathers in his broad breast. With a choking gasp, he slumped sidewise and rolled into the shallow water. In an instant, Conan was down the bank and wading into the water to grasp the drifting canoe. Balthus stumbled after him, somewhat dazedly crawled into the canoe. Conan scrambled in, seized the paddle, and sent the craft shooting toward the eastern shore. 
Balthus noted with envious admiration of the play of the great muscles beneath the sunburnt skin. The Cimmerian seemed an iron man who never knew fatigue. What did you say to the Pict? asked Balthus. Told him to pull into shore. Said there was a white forest runner on the other bank who was trying to get a shot at him. That doesn't seem fair, Balthus objected. He thought a friend was speaking to him. You mimicked a Pict perfectly. We needed his boat, grunted Conan, not pausing in his exertions, only way to lure him to the bank. Which is worse, to betray a Pict who'd enjoy skinning us both alive, or betray the men across the river whose lives depend on our getting over? Balthus mulled over this delicate ethical question for a moment, then shrugged his shoulders and asked, How far are we from the fort? Conan pointed to a creek which flowed into Black River from the east, a few hundred yards below them. That's South Creek. It's ten miles from its mouth to the fort. It's the southern boundary of Kanajohara. Marshes miles wide south of it. No danger of a raid from across them. Nine miles above the fort, North Creek forms the other boundary. Marshes beyond that, too. That's why an attack must come from the west, across Black River. Kornajohara's just like a spear, with a point nineteen miles wide, thrust into the Pictish wilderness. Why don't we keep the canoe and make the trip by water? Because, considering the current we've got to brace, and the bends in the river, we can go faster afoot. Besides, remember, Guawela is south of the fort. If the Picts are crossing the river, we'd run right into them. Dusk was gathering as they stepped upon the eastern bank. Without pause, Conan pushed on northward at a pace that made Balthus's sturdy legs ache. Valanus wanted a fort built at the mouths of North and South Creeks, grunted the Cimmerian. Then the river could be patrolled constantly. But the government wouldn't do it. Soft-bellied fools sitting on velvet cushions with naked girls offering them iced wine on their knees. I know the breed. They can't see any further than their palace wall. Diplomacy, hell! They'd fight Picts with theories of territorial expansion. Valanus and men like him have to obey the orders of a set of damned fools— They'll never grab any more Pictish land, any more than they'll ever rebuild Venarium. The time may come when they'll see the barbarians swarming over the walls of the eastern cities. A week before, Balthus would have laughed at any such preposterous suggestion. Now he made no reply. He had seen the unconquerable ferocity of the men who dwelt beyond the frontiers. He shivered casting glances at the sullen river, just visible through the bushes at the arches of the trees which crowded close to its banks. He kept remembering that the Picts might have crossed the river and be lying in ambush between them and the fort. It was growing dark fast. A slight sound ahead of them jumped his heart into his throat, and Conan's sword gleamed in the air. He lowered it when a dog, a great, gaunt, scarred beast, slunk out of the bushes and stood staring at them. That dog belonged to a settler who tried to build his cabin on the bank of the river a few miles south of the fort, grunted Conan. The Picts slipped over and killed him, of course, and burned his cabin. 
we found him dead among the embers, and the dog lying senseless among three Picts he'd killed. He was almost cut to pieces. We took him to the fort and dressed his wounds, but after he recovered he took to the woods and turned wild. "'What now, Slasher? Are you hunting the men who killed your master?' The massive head swung from side to side, and his eyes glowed greenly. He did not growl or bark. Silently as a phantom, he slid in behind them. "'Let him come,' muttered Conan. "'He can smell the devils before we can see them.' Balthus smiled and laid his hand caressingly on the dog's head. The lips involuntarily writhed back to display the gleaming fangs. Then the great beast bent his head sheepishly, and his tail moved with jerky uncertainty, as if the owner had almost forgotten the emotions of friendliness. Balthus mentally compared the gaunt, hard body with the fat, sleek hounds tumbling vociferously over one another in his father's kennel yard. He sighed. The frontier was no less hard for beasts than for men. This dog had almost forgotten the meaning of kindness and friendliness. Slasher glided ahead, and Conan let him take the lead. The last tinge of dusk faded into stark darkness. The miles fell away under their steady feet. Slasher seemed voiceless. Suddenly, he halted, tense, ears lifted. An instant later, the men heard it, a demoniac yelling up the river ahead of them, faint as a whisper. Conan swore like a madman. They've attacked the fort. We're too late. Come on. He increased his pace, trusting to the dog to smell out ambushes ahead. In a flood of tense excitement, Balthus forgot his hunger and weariness. The yells grew louder as they advanced, and above the devilish screaming they could hear the deep shouts of the soldiers. Just as Balthus began to fear they would run into the savages who seemed to be howling just ahead of them, Conan swung away from the river in a wide semicircle that carried them to a low rise from which they could look over the forest. They saw the fort, lighted with torches thrust over the parapets on long poles. These cast a flickering, uncertain light over the clearing, and in that light they saw throngs of naked, painted figures along the fringe of the clearing. The river swarmed with canoes. The Picts had the fort completely surrounded. An incessant hail of arrows rained against the stockade from the woods and the river. The deep twanging of the bowstrings rose above the howling. Yelling like wolves, several hundred naked warriors with axes in their hands ran from under the trees and raced toward the eastern gate. They were within a hundred and fifty yards of their objective when a withering blast of arrows from the wall littered the ground with corpses and sent the survivors fleeing back to the trees. The men in the canoes rushed their boats toward the river wall and were met by another shower of cloth-yard shafts and a volley from the small ballistas mounted on towers on that side of the stockade. Stones and logs whirled through the air and splintered and sank half a dozen canoes, killing their occupants, and the other boats drew back out of range. A deep roar of triumph rose from the walls of the fort, answered by a bestial howling from all quarters. "'Shall we try to break through?' asked Balthus, trembling with eagerness. Conan shook his head. 
He stood with his arms folded, his head slightly bent, a somber and brooding figure. The fort's doomed. The Picts are blood-mad and won't stop until they're all killed. And there are too many of them for the men in the fort to kill. We couldn't break through, and if we did, we could do nothing but die with Valanus. There's nothing we can do but save our own hides, then? Yes, we've got to warn the settlers. Do you know why the Picts are not trying to burn the fort with fire arrows? Because they don't want a flame that might warn the people to the east. They plan to stamp out the fort and then sweep east before anyone knows of its fall. They may cross Thunder River and take Velitrium before the people know what's happened. At least they'll destroy every living thing between the fort and Thunder River. We failed to warn the fort, and I see now it would have done no good if we hadn't. The fort's too poorly manned. A few more charges and the Picts will be over the walls and breaking down the gates. But we can start the settlers toward Velitrium. Come on. We're outside the circle the Picts have thrown around the fort. We'll keep clear of it. They swung out in a wide arc, hearing the rising and falling of the volume of the yells, marking each charge and repulse. The men in the fort were holding their own, but the shrieks of the Picts did not diminish in savagery. They vibrated with a timber that held assurance of ultimate victory. Before Balthus realized they were close to it, they broke into the road leading east. "'Now run!' grunted Conan. Balthus set his teeth. It was nineteen miles to Velitrium, a good five to Scalp Creek, beyond which began the settlements. It seemed to the Aquilonian that they had been fighting and running for centuries— but the nervous excitement that rioted through his blood stimulated him to superhuman efforts. Slasher ran ahead of them, his head to the ground, snarling low. The first sound they had heard. Picts ahead of us, snarled Conan, dropping to one knee and scanning the ground in the starlight. He shook his head, baffled. I can't tell how many. Probably only a small party, some that couldn't wait to take the fort. They've gone ahead to butcher the settlers in their beds. Come on! Ahead of them presently they saw a small blaze through the trees and heard a wild and ferocious chanting. The trail bent there, and leaving it, they cut across the bend through the thickets. A few moments later they were looking on a hideous sight. An oxwain stood in the road piled with meager household furnishings. It was burning. The oxen lay near with their throats cut. A man and a woman lay in the road, stripped and mutilated. Five Picts were dancing about them with fantastic leaps and bounds, waving bloody axes. One of them brandished the woman's red-smeared gown. At the sight, a red haze swam before Balthus. Lifting his bow, he lined the prancing figure, black against the fire, and loosed. The slayer leaped convulsively and fell dead with the arrow through his heart. Then the two white men and the dog were upon the startled survivors. Conan was animated merely by his fighting spirit and an old, old racial hate, but Balthus was afire with new kindled wrath. 
He met the first pick to oppose him with a ferocious swipe that split the painted skull and sprang over his falling body to grapple with the others. But Conan had already killed one of the two he had chosen, and the leap of the Aquilonian was a second late. The warrior was down with a long sword through him, even as Balthus's axe was lifted. Turning toward the remaining picked, Balthus saw Slasher rise from his victim, his great jaws dripping blood. Balthus said nothing as he looked down at the pitiful forms in the road beside the burning wain. Both were young, the woman little more than a girl. By some whim of chance the Picts had left her face unmarred, and even in the agonies of an awful death it was beautiful. But her soft young body had been hideously slashed with many knives. A mist clouded Balthus's eyes, and he swallowed chokingly. The tragedy momentarily overcame him. He felt like falling upon the ground and weeping and biting the earth. Some young couple just hitting out on their own, Conan was saying as he wiped his sword unemotionally, on their way to the fort when the Picts met them. Maybe the boy was going to enter the service. Maybe take up land on the river. Well, that sort will happen to every man, woman, and child this side of Thunder River if we don't get them into Velitrium in a hurry. His knees trembled with nausea as Balthus followed Conan. There was no hint of weakness in the long, easy stride of the Cimmerian. There was a kinship between him and the great gaunt brute that glided beside him. Slasher no longer growled with his head to the trail. The way was clear before them. The yelling on the river came faintly to them, but Balthus believed the fort was still holding. Conan halted suddenly, with an oath. He showed Balthus a trail that led north from the road. It was an old trail, partly grown with new young growth, and this growth had recently been broken down. Balthus realized this fact more by feel than sight, though Conan seemed to see like a cat in the dark. The Cimmerian showed him where broad wagon tracks turned off the main trail, deeply indented in the forest mold. "'Settlers going to the licks after salt,' he grunted. "'They're at the edges of the marsh, about nine miles from here. Blast it! They'll be cut off and butchered to a man. Listen!' One man can warn the people on the road. Go ahead and wake them up and herd them into Velitrium. I'll go and get the men gathering the salt. They'll be camped by the licks. We won't come back to the road. We'll head straight through the woods. With no further comment, Conan turned off the trail and hurried down the dim path, and Balthus, after staring after him for a few moments, set down along the road. The dog had remained with him and glided softly at his heels. When Balthus had gone a few rods, he heard the animal growl. Whirling, he glared back the way he had come, and was startled to see a vague, ghostly glow vanishing into the forest in the direction Conan had taken. Slasher rumbled deep in his throat, his hackles stiff, and his eyes balls of green fire. Balthus remembered the grim apparition that had taken the head of the merchant Tiberius not far from that spot, and he hesitated. The thing must be following Conan. But the giant Cimmerian had repeatedly demonstrated his ability to take care of himself, and Balthus felt his duty lay toward the helpless settlers who slumbered in the path of the Red Hurricane. 
The horror of the fiery phantom was overshadowed by the horror of those limp, violated bodies beside the burning oxwain. He hurried down the road, crossed Scalp Creek, and came in sight of the first settler's cabin, a long, low structure of axe-hewn logs. In an instant he was pounding on the door. A sleepy voice inquired his pleasure. "'Get up! The pits are over the river!' That brought instant response. A low cry echoed his words, and then the door was thrown open by a woman in a scanty shift. Her hair hung over her bare shoulders in disorder. She held a candle in one hand and an axe in the other. Her face was colorless, her eyes wide with terror. "'Come in,' she begged. "'We'll hold the cabin.' "'No. We must make for Villatrium. The fort can't hold them back. It may have fallen already. Don't stop to dress. Get your children and come on.' "'But my man's gone with the others after salt,' she wailed, wringing her hands. Behind her peered three tussled youngsters, blinking and bewildered. "'Conan's gone after them. He'll fetch them through safe. We must hurry up the road to warn the other cabins.' Relief flooded her countenance. "'Mitra be thanked!' she cried. "'If the Cimmerian's gone after them, they're safe if mortal man can save them.' In a whirlwind of activity, she snatched up the smallest child and herded the others through the door ahead of her. Balthus took the candle and ground it out under his heel. He listened an instant. No sound came up the dark road. "'Have you got a horse?' "'In the stable,' she groaned. "'Oh, hurry!' He pushed her aside as she fumbled with shaking hands at the bars. He led the horse out and lifted the children on its back, telling them to hold to its mane and to each other. They stared at him seriously, making no outcry. The woman took the horse's halter and set out up the road. She still gripped her axe, and Balthus knew that if cornered she would fight with the desperate courage of a she-panther. He held behind, listening. He was oppressed by the belief that the fort had been stormed and taken— that the dark-skinned hordes were already streaming up the road toward Velitrium, drunken on slaughter and mad for blood. They would come with the speed of starving wolves. Presently they saw another cabin looming ahead. The woman started to shriek a warning, but Balthus stopped her. He hurried to the door and knocked. A woman's voice answered him. He repeated his warning, and soon the cabin disgorged its occupants, an old woman two young women and four children. Like the other woman's husband, their men had gone to the salt licks the day before, unsuspecting of any danger. One of the young women seemed dazed, the other prone to hysteria. But the old woman, a stern old veteran of the frontier, quieted them harshly. She helped Balthus get out the two horses that were stabled in a pen behind the cabin and put the children on them. Balthus urged that she herself mount with them, but she shook her head and made one of the younger women ride. "'She's with child,' grunted the old woman. "'I can walk. And fight, too, if it comes to that.' As they set out, one of the young women said, "'A young couple passed along the road about dusk. We advised them to spend the night at our cabin, but they were anxious to make the fort tonight. Did—did—' "'They met the Picts,' answered Balthus briefly. The woman sobbed in horror. They were scarcely out of sight of the cabin when some distance behind them quavered a long, high-pitched yell. "'A wolf!' exclaimed one of the women. 
A painted wolf with an axe in his hand, muttered Balthus. Go, rouse the other settlers along the road and take them with you. I'll scout along behind. Without a word, the old woman herded her charges ahead of her. As they faded into the darkness, Balthus could see the pale ovals that were the faces of the children twisted back over their shoulders to stare toward him. He remembered his own people on the Tauran, and a moment's giddy sickness swam over him. With momentary weakness he groaned and sank down on the road. His muscular arm fell over Slasher's massive neck, and he felt the dog's warm, moist tongue touch his face. He lifted his head and grinned with a painful effort. "'Come on, boy,' he mumbled, rising. "'We've got work to do.' A red glow suddenly became evident through the trees. The Picts had fired the last hut. He grinned. How Zogar Sag would froth if he knew his warriors had let their destructive natures get the better of them. The fire would warn the people further up the road— they would be awake and alert when the fugitives reached them. But his face grew grim. The women were traveling slowly, on foot and on the overloaded horses. The swift-footed Picts would run them down within a mile, unless— He took his position behind a tangle of fallen logs beside the trail. The road west of him was lighted by the burning cabin, and when the Picts came, he saw them first— black, furtive figures etched against the distant glare. Drawing a shaft to the head, he loosed, and one of the figures crumpled. The rest melted into the woods on either side of the road. Slasher whimpered with a killing lust beside him. Suddenly, a figure appeared at the fringe of the trail, under the trees, and began gliding toward the fallen timbers. Balthus's bowstring twanged, and the picked yelped, staggered, and fell into the shadows with the arrow through his thigh. Slasher cleared the timbers with a bound and leaped into the bushes. They were violently shaken, and then the dog slunk back to Balthus's side, his jaws crimson. No more appeared in the trail. Balthus began to fear they were stealing past his position through the woods, and when he heard a faint sound to his left, he loosed blindly. He cursed as he heard the shaft splinter against a tree, but Slasher glided away as silently as a phantom. And presently Balthus heard a thrashing and a gurgling. And then Slasher came like a ghost through the bushes, snuggling his great crimson-stained head against Balthus's arm. Blood oozed from a wound in his shoulder, but the sounds in the wood had ceased forever. The men lurking on the edges of the road evidently sensed the fate of their companion and decided that an open charge was preferable to being dragged down in the dark by a devil-beast they could not see nor hear. Perhaps they realized that only one man lay behind the logs. They came with a sudden rush, breaking cover from both sides of the trail. Three dropped with arrows through them, and the remaining pair hesitated. One turned and ran back down the road, but the other lunged over the breastwork, his eyes and teeth gleaming in the dim light, his axe lifted. Balthus's foot slipped as he sprang up, but the slip saved his life. The descending axe shaved a lock of hair from his head, and the picked rolled down the logs from the force of his wasted blow. Before he could regain his feet, Slasher tore his throat out. Then followed a tense period of waiting in which time Balthus wondered if the man who had fled 
had been the only survivor of the party. Obviously, it had been a small band who had either left the fighting at the fort or was scouting ahead of the main body. Each moment that passed increased the chances of safety for the women and children hurrying toward Velitrium. Then, without warning, a shower of arrows whistled over his retreat. A wild howling rose from the woods along the trail. Either the survivor had gone after aid, or another party had joined the first. The burning cabin still smoldered, lending a little light. Then they were after him, gliding through the trees beside the trail. He shot three arrows and threw the bow away. As if sensing his plight, they came on, not yelling now, but in deadly silence except for a swift pad of many feet. He fiercely hugged the head of the great dog, growling at his side, muttered, All right, boy, give him hell, and sprang to his feet, drawing his axe. Then the dark figures fluttered over the breastworks and closed in a storm of flailing axes, stabbing knives, and ripping fangs. 7. The Devil in the Fire when Conan turned from the Velitrium Road, he expected a run of some nine miles and set himself to the task, but he had not gone four when he heard the sounds of a party of men ahead of him. From the noise they were making in their progress, he knew they were not Picts. He hailed them. "'Who's there?' challenged a harsh voice. "'Stand where you are until we know you, or you'll get an arrow through you.' "'You couldn't hit an elephant in this darkness.' answered Conan impatiently. Come on, fool, it's me, Conan. The Picts are over the river. We suspected as much, answered the leader of the men as they strode forward. Tall, rangy men, stern-faced, with bows in their hands. One of our party wounded an antelope and tracked it nearly to Black River. He heard them yelling down the river and ran back to our camp. We left the salt in the wagons, turned the oxen loose, and came as swiftly as we could. If the Picts are besieging the fort, war parties will be ranging up the road toward our cabins. Your families are safe, grunted Conan. My companion went ahead to take them to Velitrium. If we go back to the main road, we may run into the whole horde. We'll strike southeast through the timber. Go ahead. I'll scout behind. A few moments later, the whole band was hurrying southeastward. Conan followed more slowly, keeping just within earshot. He cursed the noise they were making. That many Picts or Cimmerians would have moved through the woods with no more noise than the wind makes as it blows through the black branches. He had just crossed a small glade when he wheeled, answering the conviction of his primitive instincts that he was being followed. Standing motionless among the bushes, he heard the sounds of the retreating settlers fade away. Then a voice called faintly back along the way he had come. Conan! Conan! Wait for me, Conan! Balthus! He swore bewilderedly. Cautiously he called. Here I am! Wait for me, Conan! The voice came more distinctly. Conan moved out of the shadows, scowling. What the devil are you doing here? Crom! He half-crouched, the flesh prickling along his spine. It was not Balthus who was emerging from the other side of the glade. A weird glow burned through the trees. It moved toward him, shimmering weirdly. 
a green witch-fire that moved with purpose and intent. It halted some feet away, and Conan glared at it, trying to distinguish its fire-misted outlines. The quivering flame had a solid core. The flame was but a green garment that masked some animate and evil entity, but the Cimmerian was unable to make out its shape or likeness. Then, shockingly, a voice spoke to him from amidst the fiery column. Why do you stand like a sheep waiting for the butcher, Conan? The voice was human, but carried strange vibrations that were not human. Sheep? Conan's wrath got the best of his momentary awe. Do you think I'm afraid of a damned Pictish swamp devil? A friend called me. I called in his voice, answered the other. The men you follow belong to my brother. I would not rob his knife of their blood, but you are mine. Oh, fool, you have come from the far gray hills of Samaria to meet your doom in the forests of Kanajohara. You've had your chance at me before now, snorted Conan. Why didn't you kill me then if you could? My brother had not painted a skull black for you and hurled it into the fire that burns forever on Gullah's black altar. He had not whispered your name to the black ghosts that haunt the uplands of the dark land. But a bat has flown over the mountains of the dead and drawn your image in blood on the white tiger's hide that hangs before the long hut where sleep the four brothers of the night. The great serpents coil about their feet, and the stars burn like fireflies in their hair. Why have the gods of darkness doomed me to death? growled Conan. Something, a hand, foot, or talon, he could not tell which, thrust out from the fire and marked swiftly on the mold. A symbol blazed there, marked with fire, and faded, but not before he recognized it. You dared make the sign which only a priest of Jebel Sag dare make. Thunder rumbled through the black mountains of the dead, and the altar hut of Gullah was thrown down by a wind from the gulf of ghosts. The loon which is messenger to the four brothers of the night flew swiftly and whispered your name in my ear. Your race is run. You are a dead man already. Your head will hang in the altar hut of my brother. Your body will be eaten by the black-winged, sharp-beaked children of Gilles. Who the devil is your brother? demanded Conan. His sword was naked in his hand, and he was subtly loosening the axe in his belt. Zogar Sag, a child of Jabal Sag, who still visits his sacred groves at times, a woman of Guawela slept in a grove holy to Jabal Sag. Her babe was Zogar Sag. I, too, am a son of Jabal Sag, out of a fire-being of a far realm. Zogar Sag summoned me out of the misty lands. With incantations and sorcery and his own blood, he materialized me in the flesh of his own planet. We are one. 
tied together by invisible threads. His thoughts are my thoughts. If he is struck, I am bruised. If I am cut, he bleeds. But I have talked enough. Soon your ghost will talk with the ghosts of the Dark Land, and they will tell you of the old gods which are not dead, but sleep in the outer abysses, and from time to time awake. I'd like to see what you look like, muttered Conan, working his axe free. You who leave a track like a bird, who burn like a flame and yet speak with a human voice. You shall see, answered the voice from the flame. See, and carry the knowledge with you into the dark land. The flames leaped and sank, dwindling and dimming. A face began to take shadowy form. At first Conan thought it was Zogar Sag himself who stood wrapped in green fire, but the face was higher than his own, and there was a demoniac aspect about it. Conan had noted various abnormalities about Zogar Sag's features, an obliqueness of the eyes, a sharpness of the ears, a wolfish thinness of the lips and the apparition which swayed before him. The eyes were red as coals of living fire. More details came into view. A slender torso covered with snaky scales, which was yet manlike in shape, with manlike arms, from the waist upward. Below, long crane-like legs ended in splays three-toed feet like those of some huge bird. Along the monstrous limbs the green fire fluttered and ran. He saw it as through a glistening mist. Then suddenly it was towering over him, though he had not seen it move toward him. A long arm, which for the first time he noticed was armed with curving, sickle-like talons, swung high and swept down at his neck. With a fierce cry he broke the spell and bounded aside, hurling his axe. The demon avoided the cast with an unbelievably quick movement of its narrow head, and was on him again with a hissing rush of leaping flames. But fear had fought for it when it slew its other victims, and Conan was not afraid. He knew that any being clothed in material flesh can be slain by material weapons, however grisly its form may be. One flailing, talon-armed limb knocked his helmet from his head. A little lower, and it would have decapitated him. But fierce joy surged through him as his savagely driven sword sank deep in the monster's groin. He bounded backward from a flailing stroke, tearing his sword free as he leaped. The talons raked his breast, ripping through male links as if they had been cloth. But his return spring was like that of a starving wolf. He was inside the lashing arms and driving his sword deep in the monster's belly, felt the arms lock about him and the talons ripping the mail from his back as they sought his vitals. He was lapped and dazzled by blue flame that was chill as ice. Then he had torn fiercely away from the weakening arms, and his sword cut the air in a tremendous swipe. The demon staggered and fell sprawling sidewise, its head hanging only by a shred of flesh. The fires that veiled it leaped fiercely upward, now red as gushing blood, hiding the figure from view. A scent of burning flesh filled Conan's nostrils. Shaking the blood and sweat from his eyes, he wheeled and ran staggeringly through the woods, 
blood trickled down his limbs. Somewhere, miles to the south, he saw the faint glow of flames that might mark a burning cabin. Behind him, toward the road, rose a distant howling that spurred him to greater efforts. 8. Kanajohara no more. There had been fighting on Thunder River. Fierce fighting before the walls of Elytrium. Axe and torch had been plied up and down the bank, and many a settler's cabin lay in ashes before the painted horde was rolled back. A strange quiet followed the storm, in which people gathered and talked in hushed voices, and men with red-stained bandages drank their ale silently in the taverns along the riverbank. There, to Conan the Cimmerian, moodily quaffing from a leathern jack, came a gaunt forester with a bandage about his head and his arm in a sling. He was the one survivor of Fort Tusculan. You went with the soldiers to the ruins of the fort? Conan nodded. I wasn't able, murmured the other. There was no fighting? The Picts had fallen back across Black River. Something must have broken their nerve, though only the devil who made them knows what. The woodsman glanced at his bandaged arm and sighed. They say there were no bodies worth disposing of. Conan shook his head. Ashes. The Picts had piled them in the fort and set fire to the fort before they crossed the river. Their own dead, and the men of Valanus. Valanus was killed among the last, in the hand-to-hand -hand fighting when they broke the barriers. They tried to take him alive, but he made them kill him. They took ten of the rest of us prisoners when we were so weak from fighting we could fight no more. They butchered nine of us, then and there. It was when Zogar Sag died that I got my chance to break free and run for it. Zogar Sag's dead? ejaculated Conan. Aye, I saw him die. That's why the Picts didn't press the fight against Velitrium as fiercely as they did against the fort. It was strange. He took no wounds in battle. He was dancing among the slain, waving an axe with which he'd just brained the last of my comrades. He came at me, howling like a wolf. And then he staggered and dropped the axe and began to reel in a circle, screaming as I never heard a man or beast scream before. He fell between me and the fire they'd built to roast me, gagging and frothing at the mouth. And all at once he went rigid and the Picts shouted that he was dead. It was during the confusion that I slipped my cords and ran for the woods. He hesitated, leaned closer to Conan, and lowered his voice. I saw him lying in the firelight. No weapon had touched him. Yet there were red marks, like the wounds of a sword, and groin, belly, and neck. The last as if his head had been almost severed from his body. What do you make of that? Conan made no reply, and the forester, aware of the reticence of barbarians on certain matters, continued. He lived by magic, and somehow he died by magic. It was the mystery of his death that took the heart out of the Picts. Not a man who saw it was in the fighting before Velitrium. They hurried back across Black River. Those that struck Thunder River were warriors who had come on before Zogar Sag died. 
They were not enough to take the city by themselves. I came along the road, behind their main force, and I know none followed me from the fort. I sneaked through their lines and got into the town. You brought the settlers through all right, but their women and children got into Velitrium just ahead of those painted devils. If the youth Balthus and old Slasher hadn't held them up a while, they'd have butchered every woman and child in Konajohara. I passed the place where Balthus and the dog made their last stand. They were lying amid a heap of dead picts. I counted seven, brained by his axe or disemboweled by the dog's fangs, and there were others in the road with arrows sticking in them. Gods, what a fight that must have been. He was a man, said Conan. I drink to his shade, and to the shade of the dog, who knew no fear. He quaffed part of the wine, then emptied the rest upon the floor with a curious heathen gesture, and smashed the goblet. The heads of ten Picts shall pay for his, and seven heads for the dog, who was a better warrior than many a man. And the forester staring into the moody, smoldering blue eyes, knew the barbaric oath would be kept. They'll not rebuild the fort. No. Konojohara is lost to Aquilonia. The frontier has been pushed back. Thunder River will be the new border. The woodsman sighed and stared at his calloused hand, worn from contact with axe-haft and sword-hilt. Conan reached his long arm for the wine jug. The forester stared at him, comparing him with the men about them, the men who had died along the lost river, comparing him with those other wild men over that river. Conan did not seem aware of his gaze. Barbarism is the natural state of mankind, the borderer said, still staring somberly at the Cimmerian. Civilization is unnatural. It is a whim of circumstance, and barbarism must always, ultimately triumph. Hi, I'm Jesse. I'm Tamahome. So, we just finished listening to uh, Beyond the Black River by Robert E. Howard. Mm-hmm. Actually, recorded. I did just listen to it this morning, so that's actually Me true. too. Me too. And it's uh, it was recorded uh, for Tantor, Tantor Media's collection called The Conquering Sword of Conan. And uh, who is the audiobook narrator? Um, I don't have that in front of me. Damn you! <laughs> Damn you, sir! Uh, I can look I have at my it iTunes. right in front of me, and it's uh, Todd McLaren. Okay. He's, he's actually a really good narrator, I think. Yeah, I like how he did the uh, Conan voice. He's... he's uh, Sort of confident as the Conan voice, and right. and, and the other the other character in there, um, Balthus. Yeah, Balthus is sort of a. I I'm a little less less confident in what I'm doing. Yeah, he's. he's I, uh, I I figured he was the Jimmy Olsen character. Like he needed well, Superman to help him. I I think that's actually pretty close because um, I was reading about this story and uh, he is the avatar for Robert E. Howard in this story. So he that put Balthus? himself, yeah, Balthus. Okay. He put himself in the story, right? And you'd think, oh well, uh, he's Conan, right? Uh, he's the main character. He's the the baddest, uh, the baddest damn man. No, what is it? the damnedest bastard who ever lived? <laughs> right. 
Uh, however, I Howard could, uh, fantasize that he was Conan. Well, uh, I think, I think that he imagined, um, I, I mean, he really couldn't be Conan because yeah, he's really. a goddamn writer. Conan would never sit down and write anything, right? He's right. busy chopping, chopping heads off and drinking, uh, buckets of mead or whatever. Exactly. Having adventures. But Balthus is, is kind of, I guess, uh, how, how Howard would see himself as, you know, he's a, he's a tough guy, but, uh, he's more of a, a bit player. And, and he gives himself, if, if, uh, we can read Balthus as, um, as Howard, he gives himself a good ending in the story, right? A noble ending. Right, a, a noble death. Yeah, he saved a bunch of, uh, I was gonna say, uh, pilgrims, but that's not actually correct. I guess pioneers? Right. Yeah. But with his trusty dog, Slasher. Yeah. Uh, and I think this is the only story, uh, a co- only Conan story in which there's a dog so prominently, uh, uh, displayed. Right. It's a little bit unusual. How did you, like, I, you wanted to do a Conan story and you picked this one. Uh, I, I know it's a, uh, classic but how did you manage to pick this one um well i i read the introduction of all three of the tantor books that collect mm-hmm. all the conan stories mm-hmm. and uh i guess in the last one it says like some of his best stories are in this volume and uh and the theme was uh barbarism versus civilization and uh that sounded better to me than what red nails was which is like decaying civilization so that's yeah. what i picked it yeah, I, I think the cover of uh, the Conquering Sword of Conan may be uh, actually an illustration of of this story. You know, Conan's wearing the the basically the traditional Viking hat that everybody thinks he he wears. Um, you know, the horned helmet and that, that's described in the story. Yeah, it's it's also in the uh, the Savage Sword of Conan adaptation, the two issue eighty page. Uh, adaptation by Roy Thomas mm-hmm. and John um, Busima. Yeah, John Busima. Um, but the the cover art on this makes the the picked uh, pretty pictish looking. You know, he's he's got painted skin. He's right. got uh, I I don't know what kind of haircut that is, but he's he's got a feather in his cap, right, <laughs> or, or in his hair. And they're they're fighting it out. Can you send me the link to that? Sure. Send you a link to it. It's, it's going to be uh, in the post as well. Cool. There it is. Um, now, one of the things that I was interested in, because I've read, I've, I think I've read every Conan story at some point. Wow. Uh, yeah, I'm just a beginner. Well, it sounds like you're you're getting into it, but yeah. Um, the, what stood out to me in this this listening and this reading of. Um, of this story is it's actually quite different from most of the other Conan stories, which are themselves, you know, there's quite a range to what kind of tales he tells. But in this one, I was thinking it was, it was, um, the way I was thinking about it, it, it seemed to me like Last of the Mohicans. It was a right. Last of the Mohican style story. Yeah. And, and the Wikipedia for, uh, Robert E. Howard actually says this is more of a Western setting than a, uh, gleaming city. Among ruins setting, but yeah, there's no city at all in this story, right? And, and there's no there's no women characters either. Uh, I think one is mentioned, but yeah, yeah, there's, there's yeah. Oh yeah, she shows up. She's some wife of some settler, right? But 
There's no yeah. Ray Banja or anything like that. And there's uh, there's no Ren Sonyan, there's no Valeria, there's no uh, object of of uh, desire of, of desire other than yeah. Just you there's know. no there's no white marbled legs to admire. <laughs> alabaster, alabaster, right. sir. <laughs> alabaster skin. No. Um, but uh, the more I I thought about it, I was thinking, well, you know, Last of the Mohicans. I don't think Howard. I don't know that Howard ever read that. I would assume he did, but I don't think that that's what it was inspired by. So I kept researching, and I found some uh, evidence that um, there was a couple of letters between uh, Howard and Lovecraft. And obviously, you know, this was, as you say, this is the theme of the story. Is is the it's it, given in the final lines of the of the story? If I've got right. those to be. Uh, yeah, if, if only Bill Hawake was here, I would have him read those final lines. As they <laughs> yeah, he would like, he would be a good reader for that. Maybe we can, we can add that in in post. Um, let's see if I've got those handy. Where where did they go? Do you have it? Um, there it is. Yeah, you. Oh, okay. You want me to read Barbarism it? is the natural state of mankind. The borderer said, still staring somberly at the Sumerian. Civilization is unnatural. It is a whim of circumstances, and barbarism must always ultimately triumph. So Uh, this is... Right, this is a... uh, uh, Robert E. Howard speaking, and it's like the coda for the story, right? Yes. Uh, I mean, he's speaking it through 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 the, uh, the character, but Actually, that that's not even Conan talking, but um, but it's it's the message of the of the story. Uh, do you think that's true? Um, not necessarily, but I mean, uh, I've I've heard that uh, Robert E. Howard had bad experiences with the oil companies coming to settle in his town, and they sure. supposedly ruined the town. So he he looks down on uh, advanced civilization. Yeah, and uh, he formed this opinion on it. Yeah, I mean, uh, there's the guys, you know, the one percenters up in Wall Street, uh, right, <laughs> staring down at the the barbarian hordes with their shaggy clothing and painted faces. Might might <laughs> agree. Um, I, did, I think I did see some pics in New York City. Yeah, there's some Wall pics. Street. Uh, one, I mean, uh, tattoos are coming back, you know. Yep. It's not just sailors anymore. It's it's uh, everybody's getting tattoos. Ninety nine percent. So yeah, that we were talking about before before the podcast started about how how picked are uh, something Howard took from history and put into his fictional yeah, they're uh, a real thing. Yeah, it's not Middle Earth, but it, it he's basically it's it's set on Earth. It's just um, he's created a mythical time, right? right. Ten thousand. Like, like I think, I think a lot of the locations are just like uh, a couple consonances away from real locations. Uh, well, yeah. Or if uh, some, I mean, Sumeria is a real place in the okay. world. Uh, not Sumeria, but Sumeria with a C uh, is was a real place. And uh, you know, Punt and Kush. I mean, all of those places uh, exist. Aquilonia. Oh. I'm not sure about, but uh, I wouldn't be surprised. Yeah, I heard he slightly changed the name so it wouldn't have to be super accurate, and yet still he really loved uh, history and historical romance. Yeah. So uh, he, it was a good uh, compromise for him. I think that's the highlight of uh, 
uh, the Conan stories is the, the background world building, all the uh, exotic, exotic details going on in the background. Well, uh, based on real history, I, I, I think that, you know, it's, it, that's sort of a secondary effect of what he was going for, which was sort of the, the physical display of, uh, I mean, he loves to talk, to talk about the, 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 the muscles on a person's body and, right. uh, you know, the, the alabasterness of their skin and, um, yeah, I was kind of wondering about Balthus's, uh, lifestyle. Maybe he prefers men. <laughs> and well, his muscles. It, I don't know. The, uh, I, I think you can overblow the uh, homoeroticism of, of, I mean, people really, I think, are really dismissive of Conan, uh, might do that, of the Conan stories. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I don't, I, I don't think, I don't think it's particularly homoerotic myself. Um, I think it's it's just a f- the focus is different. Um, so one of the things I was reading about uh, Princess of Mars, which we're going to be talking about at some point cool. soon, I think, um, is that uh, Edgar Rice Burroughs was kind of he had a thing against intellectuals, and uh, in a way, I think Howard does too. Um, Howard is a not a big fan of bureaucracy or you know the crap of civilization, and yet he also loves books, and he's a writer. So how can you balance those two things? And he writes the H uh, Lovecraft. Sure, he an intellectual. Well, how do they get along? I don't. I mean, these are not intellectuals of the uh, you know sit in an ivory tower. Right, kind. right. They are intellectuals of of their own devising. They are. The underground, um, so like to speak. autodidactic scholars of their own interests, and so they're very well educated in the areas they're interested in. But uh, also, uh, they have a lot of unquestioning assumptions that um, you know don't don't sit in there in their stories. But uh, why don't we uh, why don't we talk before we switch com- completely back to the story? Why don't we talk about this um, Margaret Atwood? Uh, <laughs> Because okay. I, I just heard she this. Talks about Conan. Yeah, in okay. there's a interview on with her on the CBC Q podcast. That's the letter Q from October seventeenth, and it's a really interesting interview because it's a big, long, uncut interview, and uh, it, it, I think Q's doing a really good job with with that. But um, you know, just getting a real meaty interview with somebody, and she she sounds kind of crazy in it um but she's written this new book on literary criticism uh it's filed under the literary criticism section of Mm -hmm. uh of the bookstore and it's basically it's about science fiction um which she doesn't uh, write which she doesn't write but make that clear uh but she she does talk about uh occasional she writes occasionals which she thinks, uh, I guess, The Handmaid's Tale is what she would call an occasional, which may or may not be a science. I, I really didn't understand what she was saying. But okay. in, in, her, in her research for this book, she talked about um, uh, having read all of the, quote-unquote, Conan the Barbarian stories. And in the interview, she, she, she makes a point of saying, even though the interview doesn't take it up, of saying that, 
Conan the Barbarian is the literary descendant of Walt Whitman and of Walt Whitman and Henry James. Mm. Now, uh, have you read any Henry James? Mm, no. Okay, well, Henry James is uh, very, I would say, completely the opposite of Robert E. Howard. Yeah, isn't he like upper class? Uh, well, he's an American who moved to England. Okay. Uh, and was writing um, sort of stories of of personality, I guess. Stories of um, what we would call mainstream stories, generally. He he did write a couple of um, of uh, ghost stories, yeah, but he he didn't write any fantasy, as far as I'm aware. You know, straight straight up fantasy. And you and you did a read along of one of the ghost stories. Yeah, and yeah, uh, the Turn of the Screw, which is an excellent excellent read and uh, also an excellent podcast. I think that's one of our best podcasts ever. Um, yeah, a really really in- interesting. I wasn't there. No, this is before you. But um, the thing is, is Henry James. I, I don't see how she gets that. But Walt Whitman is a is a poet, and I guess yeah, um, it's very back to nature. I guess that's what she's going for. I, I really don't understand what she's saying exactly. Um, he's he's um, it's he's got overt sexuality in his in his stuff. Uh, Talks about religion. Uh, I, I I don't get it. I don't get what she's saying. Uh, what what does what does uh, Howard Howard's writing in Conan remind you of? Doesn't remind me of Walt Whitman at all. Um, well, I can only think of things that that followed it, like sword and sorcery. Yeah, well, I think he invented that. Uh, yeah, he pr- basically did. I think. Um. It, it, I think it's. I think one of the reasons it's so good, so good and so popular, uh, you know, it's been so enduring, is because it it almost is original. Um, right. There isn't a real barbarian character uh, who wasn't like a historical figure uh, in fiction before uh, Howard created. Create. I mean, he really created the barbarian as a character. Mm-hmm. I think. Now, you were like a Genghis Khan historical. But Novel. you know, even so, Genghis Khan was the was the head of an empire, right? Right. And right. and and uh, although you know we get that those historical elements, and Howard certainly was inspired by by such stories. And uh, I mean, he was he was very inspired by that. I don't think it was done in fiction before that. And I guess the sorcery stuff is kind of like uh, Lovecraft, who was a contemporary. Uh well. Um, I would say that that's, yeah, he doesn't really do, uh, sorcery? I don't know. Maybe. I, I don't like think that things. sorcery, yeah, oh, it's forbidden knowledge, I think. Mm-hmm. Forbidden knowledge, but, uh, yeah, they were, really were very different kind of writers, I think. I mean, they, they're writing, both writing weird fiction, but. Right. Uh, yeah, so, uh, I, I don't, I don't see that. Now, what I can tell you is that there is a massive, um, I believe a massive uh, correlation between Howard and Jack London. Okay. You read uh, one of my favorite novels, um, if not my favorite novel, The Call of the Wild. Um, I might have read that as a kid a long time ago. Is that like yeah. a, like a dog that's alone by himself in the forest and just trying to survive? Yes. 
yeah, it's a dog who's transported from, uh, kidnapped from, uh, California and taken to, uh, Alaska and then to the Yukon to be a slave. Um, kidnapped and taken to be a slave, sold, and, uh, has to work with all these other starving dogs pulling gold and supplies across, uh, the Klondike. But, terrible. Yeah, it is terrible. But it's a journey from civilization to barbarism, right? right? Sounds like a, like a Conan dog. Exactly. And it's, it's, um, it's actually a, uh, it's kind of a reverse version of this story. Uh, not this particular story, but of Conan's story where Conan starts in barbarism and mm-hmm. becomes the king of Aquilonia, right? Right. The king of the greatest, um, civilization ever. <laughs> um, which, which, uh, is a, that's a different story. Uh, well, it is a different, it's, it's a different story in this collection, I think, but, um, I, I just think that, you know, I don't know what she, I don't know what Margaret Atwood was, is talking about. It's very clear to me that, um, atavism is something that is going on in this story. You know what atavism is? I had to look it up at one point. Uh, no. I self forgot. Atavism is the, uh, is the concept that, uh, your ancestors, um, play a role in your life through um, descending um, sin or or racial memory or something like that. Okay. So uh, there's a, a secret language that uh, we're getting back to the story now that Jebel Sag knows. Yeah, that, that, that was a cool part of the story. Yeah, very cool, and that's the sorcery element, right? He's right. A, so, somehow, uh, all humans and gods worship. Sag. Zogar Sag. I'm sorry. Zogar Sag is the is the 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 ma- the magician or sor- sorcerer, right. right? He's he's, and he's the son of uh, Jebel, right? And Jebel is like the god. Yeah, so he's like all a, humans and animals. Yeah, uh, but it's like uh, he's the Jesus for for Jebel Sag, right? Right. Um, now Jebel Sag is. This old god, sort of Lovecraftian god, that all animals used to uh, worship. Right, and, and they're like a secret language. Right, including humans. Right. Right. And um, and yet uh, we've forgotten. Almost everyone has forgotten this language, and almost all the animals have forgotten this language. And that's where the the sorcery element comes in. Right. He's not right. like reading spell books. He's he's got a He's got a secret language that he, or a forgotten language that he knows that he can give uh, commands to communicate right. with the other animals. And if the owls remember it, then they can be controlled by it. That's right, and I, I think that that's a really well well developed uh, source sorcery that we don't see in a lot of other stuff. I think that's a, one one of the richnesses that's in this story. Mm-hmm. But the, uh, the the character of Zogar Sag is able to control only some of the animals, right? And right. yet, when uh, Conan, in a, I guess in another story, he, it's not in this story, but he explains that he, he was in a cave at one point and he, and he saw a symbol that was on the ground and had been there for a million years. And then in another uh, place, I guess in the Kush, the um, he had... Uh, seen that symbol used by a, a priest, a priest or something, and the priest had explained that it's a, a message. Uh, you know, it's a, a symbol of 
uh, Jebel Sags, right? So when Conan okay. carves it on the ground there, the uh, yeah, only where you get that from. Uh, well, I, I don't think it's in. I, I think it's in you know the comics. Like they added that back in. Um, either Conan the Barbarian, uh, Marvel comic, or Savage Sword of Conan. I think they that you know Roy Thomas when he's constructing this the the Conan comics that he worked on, he took pieces out and said, "Oh, this could we could work a whole story just about this little description here, right?" And we, he shoves that into another story uh, oh. earlier in his career. So in this story, Conan's uh, approximately about forty years old. Right, and he's had a lot of experiences, kind of uh, almost cynical. I, I like it. He's almost a cynical sort of guy. He's he's a uh, world weary in a way, but still full of life. Right, and yeah, he can outrun any picked or any. Oh yeah, he's animal he's, in the forest. He's uh, you know at the at at the height of his strength and power, etc. But the what what I'm trying to say is uh, Zogar Sag. Uh, uses atavistic magic, magic that uh, comes from racial memory or genetic memory. Oh, okay. Um, and and this goes back to the all all mankind. So when when Balthus looks at this symbol that Conan's carved into the ground, the one that the the I think it's a panther sees and then runs away. Um, right. He gets a chill down his spine. Right. It's it's like uh we this is what where howard's power comes in is he is tapping into something when we s- cease the fire for the first time we are afraid of it and that's built into us there is something there right we okay. don't have to be taught that fire is bad for us right and that's true of all animals um and in if i'm i'm going to bring this back to the uh Call of the Wild. In the Call of the Wild, there is a scene uh, in which the dog is sitting at the fire, staring into the fire, um, and having sort of flashback memories to uh, himself in a previous life millions of years ago or something like that. Oh. Where he's sitting beside a, a caveman, uh, and he's a wolf, not a dog, right? And at the end of the story, he's fully integrated with the with the wolf pack, and hence the lure of barbarism, the lure of the wilderness versus the lure of civilization. Even though, you know, he's not going to be petted and, and well taken care of uh, out, out in those woods, he's going to die younger uh, and probably in a brutal fight. Um, there's still power of uh, barbarism. Right. Well, so that's, I mean, that's what I, I would say rather than what Margaret Atwood said, which I, I guess could be, have a story put into it as well. Just forget about Henry James. I I don't see I don't see how it can be connected myself. Me neither. So that's what I have. that's what came to my mind. What, what, what's going on in your mind? Um, well, originally I just wanted to see like what am I missing that that's in the comic books and the movies, but. I don't know about that or in the stories. Mm-hmm. And um, so I think in the stories, he's smarter. Um, he's more, oh, yeah. he's more agile and supple. And he, he talks a lot in the stories too. It seems like in this, this one, he is particularly chatty and that's because he's got uh, Balthus to talk to, I think. Mm-hmm. 
It's probably his chattiest novel. Yeah, I think somehow they could do a reboot of Conan where he's more uh, intelligent and not so uh, bulky looking. I mean, that that uh, new comic book from Brian Wood that's coming looks pretty cool. Mm-hmm. It looks like a more uh, modern imagining of Conan. I I, I can't say that. Um, you know, I, I I think a lot of the what people think of Conan as being, you know, the the barbarian who uh, hits always in a loincloth and yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean. Uh, that uh, you know, Howard did put him in a loincloth. Okay. Uh, not in every story, right. but um, he he is. Sometimes he has a helmet with horns on. In this story, he's specifically labeled uh, wearing a helmet with horns, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I, you know, you were talking about Barry Windsor Smith. Barry Windsor Smith put him in a helmet with horns on it, right? Good artist. Yeah, a good artist, but he put him in a loincloth with you know. Right. Uh, I think. Uh, he, the character isn't actually badly portrayed, except in the first Conan, and I guess the second Conan movie, and maybe I guess the third Conan movie now, right? right. He is, um, he in the first movie he has maybe seven sentences that he says. He's just okay. not a uh, a speaker in that one, right? He's busy getting revenge and doesn't have uh, a lot to say other than "You killed my father," right? It's Crom or laugh at you. <laughs> I don't think he says that, but so my, uh, uh, you uh, have it and grumble. Say, who cares? <laughs> yes, I think that's in it. Um, but yeah, he doesn't have a lot to say, and that that is just uh, sort of an extrapolation of, I think, the distillation of what's in the stories. The stories, he he isn't a chatty guy. He isn't uh, a deep philosopher, right? He Isn't has a story where he talks to like different philosophers. Uh, well, I think in Queen of the Black Coast, he he mentions having talked. You know, he he'll go and listen to the philosophers, right. and for a couple of days, he'll sit there and listen to them, and then say, "These guys are fucking crazy, right? There's, there's no point listening to this anymore because they're all just jabbering away." But it suggests so, a certain level of intelligence. To oh, listen. yes, he's he's dismissive of it, right? He's dismissive of it, and that's um, that's an aspect uh, that I think is distilled into the movie. Okay. Uh, I don't know about the third movie, but it's distilled into the first movie, and, and that is perhaps what what uh, you know we see in. Right. I mean, I thought the first movie was good, but uh, I'm wondering how the original text was different from that. Uh, well, that the, the movie's not based on. Uh, a particular story. It's right. on sort of a distillation of several of them. Mm-hmm. I think Oliver Stone helped write it. Uh, Oliver Stone wrote the script for it, yeah, and uh, uh, John Milius was the director. Mm-hmm. I think it's a wonderful film, actually. Yeah. Right. Then the it second one is, is so much more horrible. Yeah, although there are elements in it that are more Howard-like, in a way. Okay. Um, I, I, I think, think Roy Thomas terrible. wrote part of the script too. Yeah, it's a, it's a terrible film in many ways. Yeah, but um, I think I think that the I'm not you know I'm not a big fan of the actual sorcery elements in most of the sword and sorcery stuff. I think I'm much more interested in the sword elements. But in this story, I think it works particularly well mm-hmm. um, because it is uh, it, the the magic is derived from a sort of mythology and a an understanding of of atavism and that sort of thing, rather than uh, 
sort of the Harry Potter style of, uh, you know, old scrolls and stuff like that. I don't know. Yeah, uh, it's not the Harry Potter style, but you know the the uh, I guess Dungeons and Dragons style of magic, which uh, I think a lot of the imitate imitators are more likely to go for. I I can't really say. Um, have you ever seen the uh, Berserk anime? No. What's what's it's got a Conan character? Yeah, it's it's, it's a Conan like character, and there's like a like some creepy magic. And actually, the last two episodes. If you ever see them, it's just really, really freaky where basically he ends up in hell and there's all kinds of demons everywhere. Yeah. So I, I think, I, I think that'd be a really good thing to check out if you'd like hmm. going in. Uh, well, uh, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say no to giving it a shot. I, I, <laughs> I still have trouble understanding the, right, the appeal of, of anime per se, but, uh, I, but you have I, to watch the Japanese version. You can't watch the English dubbed. I'm happy to have the subtitles. Right. Um, there was a. Uh, I wanted to ask you. Uh, so, if you were in, this is kind of an interesting question. Okay. Uh, if you were in um, in the the Hyborian Age, uh, which which god would you worship? Uh, what are the choices, Mitra and? Mitra, Mitra is sort wow. of the Mitra is sort of the Christian style monotheistic uh, god of Aquilonia. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's Krom, who de- who's more like a uh, he's sort of an off uh, you know Odin like character who doesn't really care what happens to you. Right. He'll like laugh a, at you, right? Like a Klingon god. Yeah, more like a Klingon god, I guess. Um, he's got he'll invite you into Valhalla if you impress him, but. He'll just laugh at you if you ask him for help. Right. Um, there's also uh, there's also Jebel Sag, right? Yeah, he's uh, not present. Uh, well, I <laughs> I I don't I don't know that I I don't know that that's true. I mean, think about how how who's the good guy in this story in Beyond the Black River? Um, I don't think there is. Could, I know you. You could say that the picks are the good guys. Almost. The picks are defending their territory from right. these terrible uh, invaders, right? Yeah, I'm kind of wondering why Conan is against them. It seems like he's uh, very sympathetic he's a, towards he, them. He's not against them uh, because because um, they, they're they're in the wrong. He's not uh, against them because um, uh, he thinks Aquilonians are just so much more awesome than the picks. He respects yeah, the picks, although he he is you know he is um, definitely he has like a racial hatred. He does have he does have a racial hatred against the picks. And remember, the the picks are um, you know they are white white men. It's even said in the story right. they are white men, but they are swarthy, right? Which means they're they're dark skinned white men, which means okay. they're they're lower. So that's one reason to side with the Aquilonians, right? Um, however, the isn't Conan dark skinned? No, he's 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 tanned. <laughs> Big difference there, buddy. He's okay. he's a white man who's who's bronzed by by the sun rather okay. than he's been to the Jersey Shore. <laughs> Could, uh, <laughs> I think I think he wouldn't have a truck with those people either right. myself. But um, the the thing well, is maybe with the situation because he, he's pretty built. <laughs> Okay, let's not go any farther okay. than that. Okay, 
Now, uh, I know you're in New Jersey and everything, but I don't, I don't want to know any more about that lifestyle. Okay. All right. So, Jebel Sags, uh, I think is the good guy if you look at it objectively, right? He's trying to defend. Oh, okay. if, if you look at it from the outside point of view, and you said uh, in historical terms, who who is a good guy and who's the bad guy? Well, the settlers are moving into into pick territory mm-hmm. and uh, taking their land and uh, making their lives difficult. Uh, then the, the the picks are in the right, and the and the settlers are in the wrong. This is actually a war story, right? This is a war story. They're in a war. The reason Conan picked this side is because he just picks a side and then goes and fights. He doesn't really care which side he's on. I guess it's just whoever gives him money, he'll he'll fight. For no, him. it's not even money. It's not even <clears throat> money. It's just you know, if if. Um, Conan is, I think, would be some of the uh, one of the persons who, as a character, he doesn't believe in an external value of life. You can't like say at the end of your life you lived a good life if you helped old ladies cross the street and you prayed to God every day. I mean, that's not. He's just in it for fun. He's just in it for uh, experience, and and he has a sort of world weariness from all the different points of view he's taken but he's been a pirate and he's been a soldier and he's you know he says all the things he's been right but he um, just I, appreciates the the very basics of life he doesn't want anything too complicated right and and remember he even te- in this story he even <laughs> tells um uh Balthus that he has been on the other side in this kind of war right he was at venarium and jumped over the walls and right. killed a bunch of aquilonians right Baltus is an Aquilonian. Uh, so, that, objectively, uh, Jebel Sag is not a bad guy. I would say, in fact, he is, uh, a, just an early god, right? Mm-hmm. A sort of a forgotten god, and, uh, so, he's not an evil god. That's my defense of Jebel Sag. <laughs> Hmm. There's also if you, if you read more of the stories and, uh, more of the comics, there's lots of other gods as well in, in uh, the Conan universe, but isn't it funny how there's only one devil? Like he, uh, he, he says, the, "The devil take you." Like, why is uh, there more than one devil? Yeah, yeah. To the to the devil with you. Right. Yeah. Um, I didn't notice that myself. Okay, something I noticed. Yeah. Uh, so, would you go with Mitra? <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I, I'm I'm kind of a lay Christian, so I guess I would go with Mitra. Uh-huh, okay. I mean, the gorilla god on the moon sounds pretty cool. That's who I would go with, right? Oh, yeah? I, I don't I really thought, know about it that much. I, I thought that line stood out so well. Um, Gala, the, the gorilla god, he is, quote-unquote, the hairy one who lies on the moon. <laughs> it's like cool. there's a god on the moon who's a who's a gorilla. Uh, how did I not know about is, this? Is he in any other stories? I, I do not know if he's in, mentioned in any other stories, but... Oh. Um, I I wouldn't be surprised. Uh, he might be mentioned in Red Nails. Um, that's sort of in in uh, Kush territory, I think. Okay. Or Punt or something down there, uh, which is sort of the analog for Africa. Now, in terms of um, looking at the map, uh, you know, do you know where Aquilonia is sort of placed in the world? Oh. It's probably France. It's probably. Okay. Probably France. If you, if you do an overlay, and I think it has been done on many maps, it's sort of Central Europe, uh, maybe uh, you know Charlemagne sort of territory. Um, 
And and so if you start mapping mapping things out, uh, is that where Hi- Hyboria is? Hyboria is is Europe, I would say. Okay. Um, sort of, sort of. The, the Hyborians are sort of a group of people. Uh, whereas Hyperborea, uh, Borea means of the north, uh, like boreal forest, and okay. hyper means far or too high, right? Like uh, uh, hyperthermia versus hypothermia. Hypo would be too low, hyper is too high. So Hyperborea is like the, the far north, and uh, Hyborea is, is just the northern lands, I guess. Oh, northern I didn't realize there were two things. Northern Europe, Borea. basically, I think is the idea. Yeah, Hyperborea and Hyboria are two different places, but they're probably related in in uh, etymological terms. Um, so uh, there's some stories set in uh, Stygia, and Stygia is, you know, that's a, a name taken from, uh, you know, Greek mythology, but basically that's Howard's version of, of Egypt. Okay. And then south of Egypt, or in south of Stygia, you get other African style places like Kush and Punt, and and then the the deeper south uh, southern African nations. Now, in terms of this story, we've, he describes the territory as being Aquilonia's northern northern frontier, uh, with the Picts being um, between. Uh, Aquilonia and Pictland being between Aquilonia and the sea. So that would be like the Atlantic or something like that. Right? And then there's two rivers in this story. One is the Black River and then the other is Thunder River. Right. Um, and, and forests in between? Uh, there's, there is a settled land in between Ka- which is forested. Yeah. Okay. So, the Kano Johara? The Kano Johara, yeah. <laughs> Go. Gawela, it's all sorts of... Gawela. Gawela, yeah. Hard to pronounce things, but... Um, so on, on the on I guess, the eastern side of Thunder River is is Aquilonian territory that has been um, settled. And then to the west of Thunder River is uh, the new settlements. And then the Black River is uh, the, the point past which no settler will go because that's all picked land, right? Right. So all of this territory that they're in up to the border with Thunder River um, is picked land. And basically there's a fort and at the beginning of the story there's a war between uh, or a war brewing between uh, between the two um, peoples, the Aquilonians right. and and the picks. Is, is Pelitrium the, the closest city to the border? Pelitrium? Yeah. Could be. Yeah. Sounds right. Um, okay. And, and the, the, in that fort, they, you know, the, the, we've had reports, I guess we hear about how the governor says there's all, all his soldiers are afraid and, and they're all getting sick and they're getting bitten by animals, right? Right. Well, Conan's got all the explanations and he's been doing this for a while. Um, but, uh, what was interesting, I, I, I wanna, I wanted to figure out, you know, what the inspiration was. So I did some more research and, um, t- turns out that this is, uh, yeah, like you were saying, a western. Right. Uh, but it's actually comes from, uh, Texas history, which is, you know, I guess, 
Howard's favorite kind of history. He writes a lot of sort of Texas where he lives. Yeah, that's where he lived, and it's it's what he researched and such. But um, the the Texan history uh, has two rivers and fights with the Comanche, I think it was. Um, so really, the Picts are the Comanche, right? Right. Now, why does why does Howard make Conan on the side of the settlers because he's a settler, right? Okay. But interestingly, right, his conclusion is that barbarism can never defeat <laughs> can never defeat civilization and yet the the Comanche have been put down, right? And the, all of Texas is eventually settled even though there were terrible battles. Yeah, but now America's turning into barbarism again. So Howard was right. <laughs> Uh, but it's not the Comanches who are doing it, right? I don't know. No. Maybe the the spirit of the Comanches. Uh, maybe. It's coming maybe. back to Wall Street. But the uh, but the difference being, I guess, is that the Picts are... Um, I mean, historically, the Picts disappear out of history, right? They're mentioned, mm-hmm. uh, I think, by Julius Caesar. Um, talk, it talks briefly about them. And you say they're in England? Yeah, they were basically, uh, I mean, nobody really knows exactly who the Picts were, but oh. the idea is, you know, you've got the blue painted Celts, right? That might be what we're talking about. We might be talking okay. about people with Descendants of, of them. We don't really know. Okay. They're supposed to be a different tribe, uh, than, than the, the Celts who are also there. And in many Howard stories, he's basically the big promulgator of the concept of Pic, Picts. Right. I think uh, he, he was Irish, too. Uh, Howard, yeah. So I think it's like his ancestors. Sure. Well, no, he wouldn't, no, he wouldn't consider himself a Pict. Because the the way he describes Picts, they are like degenerating oh. white men. Right? Oh, I really like he has respect for them. Okay. And in uh, the Cull stories, um, there's a character called Brule, the Spear Slayer. Brule is a um, is a Pict, and he is worthy of respect, but um, he, he is very um, ambivalent in terms of race, right? He he disrespects uh, other races, and yet he also sees the quote unquote noble savage um, aspects of them and appreciates that. It's it's not like a one note racism. Okay, that's a symphony of racism. <laughs> oh my! <laughs> but it isn't like the the Celts as heroes, and uh, I suppose, yeah. Okay. I, 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 but yeah. So if you read more of like, there's a there's a collection from Delray, which I believe has just been been uh, released as an audiobook through Cantor as well, called uh, Bran MacMorn. Okay. Bran MacMorn is, I believe, he's the king of the of the Celts, I think. And uh, there's a group of Picts who um, contribute to the defense of England from the evil, uh, evil Romans who are. Well, I guess they're not evil. The Romans who are coming in to take over the territory, and they 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 band together in a in a, in a similar fashion. I think the story is called Kings in the Night, where a yeah. bunch of a bunch of um, uh, native uh, Britons get together to defend England from the 
invading uh, Romans. Cool. It is. It is cool. So I, There's a lot of value in these stories, I think. So I, wa- I watched that uh, Robert E. Howard movie, too, the biography. The Whole Wide World? Yeah. What did you think of it? I mean, uh, I guess it's a good uh, drama, but I, I kind of wish they went into... Like, I, I kind of wish the director was like more of a fan of Robert E. Howard and kind of went to his interests more. But like, I read that him and his girlfriend actually had a lot of uh, deep discussions about philosophy and poetry and everything, but in the movie, they just kind of talk about their relationship. Yeah, it, it is... I mean, you want to make a movie, uh, you got to make it about a relationship, right? right. And uh, Although it is true that... Um, that and that's based on a real happened. book that the, yeah. the girl wrote a... Uh, memoir about that. Yeah, the one one who walks alone. I think it was called. Yeah, yeah. Um, have you have you have you read that? I have not read that book. No. Okay. Um, but I've read about it, and uh, I think I think you know it is based on the book rather than, um, you know, the movie. I think the movie does a fairly good job of of giving you an idea. I mean, I love the actor's uh, characterization of Robert. Yeah, he did a very good job with it. I think, but. I don't think a movie is the best way to explore uh, an investig. You know, it's not a biography movie, really. Even though it is, it is uh, features a real character. Mm-hmm. Um, it feels like if you looked at it and you didn't know who Robert E. Howard was when you watched the movie, you would just say it's sort of a sort of a bleak romance that doesn't really go anywhere, right? Yeah. First, uh, she wants to go steady, and then he wants to later, and she says, it's too late. Yeah. Then, then he shoots himself. <laughs> yeah. Well, um, <laughs> yeah, it's not, I, I don't think it's a, I think it's a, a very interesting movie, but I don't think it's a very good movie because mm-hmm. it doesn't do anything particularly well, except there's a good scene in it where he, he starts sort of channeling Conan. Yeah, know? I love that scene where he describes Conan. Yeah. If you just search for Robert E. Howard on YouTube, it's probably the first Yeah, thing he's the out. damnedest bastard you ever, who ever lived and, he describes women describes, melts like butter on a hot skillet. <laughs> yeah. yeah, he's he's uh, and I think that, you know that scene is a very uh, probably the best um, depiction of what we can imagine Howard was like, and it, mm-hmm. he was very enthusiastic about his writing. Did he actually and, like speak as he was writing? I or, or he just like yells every word. I believe, he was a, I believe he was an oral storyteller. Yeah. He was a big fan of of oral story, storytelling, and I think you know he he if you look at the pictures, the photographs of, of of what we see of Howard's life, you know most photographs from people's lives in the you know forty or fifty or sixty or seventy years ago, they are pictures of people in their homes with you know sitting in a chair, blah blah blah, or at a family you know gathering of some kind. Those are not the pictures you see of Howard. Howard, he's got pictures of him with a sword in one hand mm-hmm. and a knife in the other or a gun in one hand and a gallon of beer in the other. He's he's almost posing. Uh, the, I assume that most of those photos were posed, right? Uh, he's he's basically LARPing his life. You know, he's... He, right. he's uh, a very unusual figure, and yet remember, he also lives in a small town. He's not a big town guy. Uh, I think 
if you know for a for a guy who didn't like civilization very much i think if he had uh lived in uh, a more metropolitan area he would have he would have had a much more interesting existence i i would guess cuz he 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 did so much with just living i mean i've lived in small towns i don't find them particularly um intellectual and i think that he was uh, sort of a rough-hewn intellectual i think he would have done very well had he left you know he went to mexico i don't think he he left i think he went to texas and mexico and that was it right and he wrote letters he wrote a lot of letters and he read a lot of stories about the world but i don't think he got to do all of the things he would you know that he all his his stories are all about you know traveling the world and living many different kinds of uh, I thought if he had just gone, he was a boxer though, right? Uh, he covered boxing for the local newspapers, I think. And I, I thought he actually fought. he's an amateur boxer. Yeah, yeah. I think I don't think he was a, ever a professional boxer. But right. Yeah, he was a he was a boxing enthusiast. He, he's an enthusiast of many many things, but um, guns, like apparently. Yeah, I love guns. Well, it's that that's part of the culture down there. Yeah, it might be part of the culture where you are too, right? No, I have no idea. We just have cats. <laughs> yeah, no, I think he was more of a dog Cat, person. Myself. Cats and bookstores. Uh, considering Slasher in the story, he gets a noble death. I think uh, Conan says when he hears that uh, that uh, Balthus died a noble death, he says, he says, um, I'll I'll go into Pictish territory and take ten heads for him. Yes, he fought better then, than some men. That's right, and and then. No, no, no. He's talking about Balthus, and then and then he says uh, when he hears that uh, Slasher died a noble death too, he says, oh, "I'll take seven heads for him." Right. <laughs> so yeah, he so, said the dog fought better than some people. That's right, and and the thing is, is uh, you know, this is uh, this is uh, this this is the kind of the racism aspect is like you know it goes into. Uh, you know, a white man is worth uh, three black men or something like that. You know, the oh, uh, it occurred to me. Oh yeah. Well, I mean, if you think of like um, during World War II, if if uh, one German was killed, uh, a hundred a hundred um, uh, civilian hostages would be killed in Poland or something like that. It was it mm-hmm. was like um, they they you know destroyed a whole town. Lidice, I think, is how it's pronounced. Um, because of, uh, as a reprisal against, um, you know, I, there is a, um, if you start valuing people based upon, you know, we are worth more than you, then of course you're going to end up with going, going along those lines. Now, I, I, I think that that contradiction is never fully, fully, uh, thought through by Howard, which is why he is uh, such a terrible racist, but. I think his stories are fantastic anyways. Mm-hmm. Luckily, the dog couldn't speak uh, Zogar Seg. Or- yeah, lucky. lucky I, I, when I first read it, I think I believed that the dog was going to turn on them. Yeah, it said he had weird green eyes or something. Well, yeah, but uh, it's, I think it's eventually explained that he, um, the dog had had his master killed and was, right. was uh, tra- I guess, traumatized by that. He was in berserker mode. Yeah, I, I think you know you could you could retell just the the story of the dog. You could take that yeah. out, re, retell it from the dog's point of view. Do a whole Jack London thing with the dog. Absolutely, 
absolutely. Uh, and in the in the comic, he's uh, de- the dog's depicted as a um, uh, sort of a, a hound of some kind, sort of hunting dog. No. Okay. It's not. It doesn't. It's not like a wolf or anything. It's it's a very uh, sort of domesticated animal, and I think in a way, um, that's what we're getting in that, at least visually, is also that he is a another sort of echo of How- Howard as a half half domesticated barbarian. You know, um, he ha- ends the same way as Balthus does. What, what, what do you mean? How Conan dies? Conan doesn't die. Oh, Conan is. Uh, oh, you mean the dog, right? An idealized version of of uh, Howard's, you know, highest aspirations or something. But yeah, the dog is the dog dies because he dies a warrior's death. He dies a warrior's death in the same way that Balthus does, right? Exactly. Yeah. So even a even a white man's dog is worth more than <laughs> seven picks. Oh my! Still, it's a great story. Yeah, good. Uh, I think Scott should check it out. Maybe he'll <laughs> have his mind changed. Well, he, he's going to have a listen to it, right? Everybody's going to have a listen to it in this podcast, and yeah, and they'll hear us uh, discuss, and maybe they'll have uh, their own comments. I'm sure somebody will have their own comment. All right. Maybe maybe Bill Howick will make a comment. I hope. I hope so. I, what would you 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 heard his uh, adaptation of um, uh, Queen of the Black Coast? What would you think of a adaptation of of this story? It's it's actually it's a much longer story than Queen of the Black Coast is. I think it's mm-hmm. like maybe twice as long, maybe three times as long. I think it would be good. I mean, I mean, the length is almost like the length of the movie. It's it's a two and a half hour audiobook. Yeah, maybe you can do like a two and a half hour adaptation. I think it. I think it actually would work pretty well. You know, the the original serialization in uh, Weird Tales was it was uh, two issues. It came in two parts, and the story just sort of have two parts to it. I think. Okay. There's basic. You know, there's the 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 introduction, and then they go back to the camp, right? And then yeah. and then they they go on a mission. Uh, and Balthus comes along. I, I was trying to figure out why. What, what's Balthus doing in this area? He's he's a settler. What's he doing in this area? It doesn't really make any sense to me, but it turns out that that doesn't really matter. He's mm-hmm. there to uh, go along with Conan and sort of be a witness to what's going on. Right. Yeah, I guess I should have picked a story where Conan was more a central figure, but it turned out to be a good story. He's a central figure here, I think. He's just um, it's, it's he's like not half the entire focus. And, yeah. He's not the entire focus. It is a bit unusual in that respect. But I, I think that that's also what makes it longer and and then we get a lot of richness from it. People, people, people who don't like Conan based on one story should check this one out because it's quite different from the others. Exactly. Actually, I was trying to do that Lou Anders uh, Hollywood formula thing where I had mm-hmm. uh, Balthus as the protagonist, and then Conan was just the relationship character, and then maybe <laughs> uh, doesn't work, does it? This. Yeah, yeah, because Conan defeats the sorcerer at the end, and I guess the sorcerer was the antagonist in one sense. Well. Well, if you think of it, if you think of it, uh, or maybe the sorcerer is the, an, the protagonist. If the sorcerer is the protagonist, he, he the antagonist is is uh, definitely Conan. But uh, I don't think I don't think that Hollywood formula works um, in anything other than Hollywood, because I think there's a perfectly good story that can never be adapted uh, as a movie, 
it could be adapted as a miniseries, right? Okay. You know, like a, a two-part um, t- TV style. I think you know a Conan TV series ad- adapting the uh, the novels the way that the comics adapt them would work perfectly well because you know you put it on HBO you you can have any kind of nudity you want you can have any kind of um, uh, sort of you know they they don't mind cliffhanger graphic violence graphic violence and and uh, philosophy of the woods and uh, it actually it wouldn't even be that expensive right but uh, it's I think it's actually just best as an audio book myself. Um, I think the co- the comics are a very close runner up, and and the original. Yeah, I'm not that familiar with do, the comics. Well, it, they're great to pick up. You know the um, the one uh, I sent you a copy of the um, the eighty page adaptation of um, from Savage Sword of Conan numbers twenty six and twenty seven. Um, those are available in a big dark horse collection now called uh, I think it's Savage Sword of Conan right. I've uh, seen it volume, in the I think it's volume 3 it's a sort of a phone book size um, version yeah, it's, it's of, black, yeah all black and white yeah, as are the original uh, okay so it's not it's not a uh, yeah I kind of wish I saw a color version of, of the uh, sorcerer to see his uh, ostrich feathers uh, they would be white ostrich feathers are white and black oh, okay white, white and gray so yeah, I, I mean, yeah, no, I, uh, yeah, he, like just even how he Balthus asks, where do you get those ostrich feathers? And Conan tells a story about how, you know, the the Picts trade along the coast for fire water, right? <laughs> Not exactly, but wine and wine and, uh, and they trade, I, I guess, gold and ore and that sort of thing. This is a, a frontier story. Yeah, it's a fun one. Have you seen the the uh, original Weird covers, mm-hmm. Weird Tales covers? It doesn't look like Conan is that buff. Uh, original, no, well, that uh, Margaret Margaret Brundage, I think, is her name. Uh, she, I don't think she does a very um, a very good job. <laughs> okay, as an artist myself, I'm not a big fan. I mean, I think she she's she likes people tied up and stuff like that. So uh, the focus is not really. Um, He's, he's they're very stylized, I would say. I'd say they, they should portray Conan as more like a like a panther, like more, more agile than as like a bulky, like the yeah. Hulk or something. Yeah, he's not the Hulk, right? Although, although the way um, the way uh, he's described in some of it, I mean, it is it's all about the muscles and the the, the corded True. wires and stuff. I mean. Massive chest uh, and shoulders, but yeah, but the the analogy is always he's a panther, he's a he's a uh, tiger, he's a um, a wolf. I've right? seen the word supple used. Supple, supple, supple. Oh, that's a woman with a supple waist, right? Su- supple muscles, like agile. Okay. Flexible. <laughs> yeah. We need a more flexible Conan. Yeah, I, I wouldn't mind doing red nails at some point. I think that that might mm-hmm. be a, a good listen. I, I I like that story. And there's a you you would like the adaptation of it too. There's a um, beautiful comic book ad- adaptation of it in color. Uh, I believe there's a color version as well. Yeah, there's a okay. black and white and a color version. But the, it's the same one, just one is colored. 
I, I, I've listened to parts of it. It sounds like he's just leering at the woman a lot. He does a lot of leering. He's a little younger in that story. And okay. also, um, uh, apparently that one is based on, you know, uh, it says, Red Nails was inspired by a trip to New Mexico with Truett Vincent, during which Howard discovered that Vincent was also in a relationship with Price. Noveline Price Ellis, his, his girlfriend, so. Right. Yeah, I saw that in the movie. Um, Love so. Triangle. Yeah. But yeah, it, it's a, it's a, it's not a bad, it's actually, it's almost a science fiction story. It's, it's got laser beams in it. Oh, okay. <laughs> the, the, there's a priest, I think, uh, they've got some laser beams style, um, I mean, it doesn't say laser beams because it's way before lasers were invented, but, you know, narrow beams of heat energy that oh. are visible. You know, that's a laser beam. So we kind of invented lasers. Kind of invented lasers, not exactly, but yes. Um, and they've got armor and, mm-hmm. uh, and there's, there's also sort of a dinosaur in it. It's, it's a fun, it's a fun read. This has been the SFF Audio Podcast. Please join us at www.sffaudio.com. Gorilla God. Don't talk about the Gorilla God. Ooh, her, her. <laughs>